Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Professor Ali Atai from Zaytuna College. Welcome back, sir. Thank you so much, Paul. Good to see you. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam. Walaikum assalam. Now, Professor Ali Atai has kindly agreed to do a pretty long presentation uh, on the following. The, the Son of Man, this phrase we see uh, in Daniel 7, it's a book in the Old Testament. Who was he, according to Jews, Christians, and Dr. Atai himself? Um, the presentation will cover um, Daniel itself, authorship, dating, etc., and comments on Paul's Christology, his understanding of Jesus, as well as Mark's, and the Enochic tradition, this, this, uh, we'll explain what that is about, and also its influence on the gospel's use of this enigmatic title, if it is a title, Son of Man. And also some, uh, he'll be talking about the historical Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet, and Muhammad as a Danielic son of man, peace be upon them both. So uh, Dr. Aliatai will explain in more detail what that is. This is a, a very significant, major, and qu quite massive, arguably, um, contribution. So uh, th this video may be uh, cut up into, sh into shorter um, uh, fragments, but um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but uh, over to you, sir, and uh, perhaps you could introduce us and take the subject away. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Muhammadin wa alihi wa Again, thank you, Paul. It's an honor and a pleasure to be back on Blogging Theology, uh, the best channel on YouTube, of course. Um, <laughs> if you're listening to this channel for the first time and you're a seeker of knowledge, my advice to you is simply to subscribe to this channel. That's number one. And number two, uh, keep an open mind. You'll definitely learn something, whether you uh, agree or not. I think you'll learn something. It's going to be educational and enriching for you. And, uh, and I said this last time, and I'll, I'll say it again. My intention is certainly not to disrespect Christianity or antagonize Christians, God forbid. Um, I criticize Christianity because I'm a Muslim. Uh, I disagree with uh, Christianity, and sometimes I vehemently uh, disagree. Uh, but academic criticism and disagreement, even if it's uh, emphatic and impassioned, uh, should not be mistaken for disrespect or denigration. Um, also, I want to say briefly that the views that I express today are not necessarily those of uh, Zaytuna College. I'm not here as a representative of the college. I'm here as an independent speaker. These are my own words. These are my own thoughts. Uh, okay, so as you said, Brother Paul, today we want to focus on the person mm -hmm. of the, the Son of Man mentioned in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and how uh, Daniel, chapter 7, is related to the New Testament Gospels. And who is the Son of Man? Uh, in my opinion. Uh, and then in the future, inshallah, uh, I will at least um, uh, attempt to make sense of uh, Daniel chapter 9, which is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to understand. Um, so if you're a Christian, you're certainly going to hear things today uh, that are going to you know, bother you, and that's okay. That's, that's life. Um, all I ask uh, is that you seriously think about uh, <clears throat> what I'm going to say. Uh, don't be, uh, you know, dismissive or, or immature. You know, one of my professors always used to say, never stop thinking, right? Never stop thinking. So just just think about these things uh, at the very least. Uh, so we, we can't talk about both chapters today, Daniel 7 and 9, because we simply lack uh, sufficient time. And with Daniel 7, uh, you'll see there is a lot of background information uh, that we need to uh, cover uh, in order to adequately understand my contention uh, even with this said, I'm sure after today's uh, session, many Christians will say, well, what about Daniel chapter 9? Daniel chapter 9 predicts 
the very year of the crucifixion of the Messiah and how convenient that he didn't talk about that. I will talk about that, but they're just going to have to be patient. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 9, in my opinion, are uh, horrendously misinterpreted uh, by Christian writers and apologists. And I'll demonstrate this, uh, inshallah. Um, okay, so let's talk about the Son of Man. Uh, but before we look at the actual text of Daniel 7, uh, let's first answer the question, what does the Aramaic construct phrase bar inash, or son of man, even mean? I mean, what does it mean literally? Uh, well, it simply means a human being, okay, a mortal, a man, uh, literally a son of a human. Okay, so th this phrase also appears in Hebrew in, in the Tanakh as ben adam. You'll find it many times, for example, as you know, in the book of Ezekiel and other books as well. Uh, we also find it in numerous hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, for example, in a hadith Qudsi, a sacred hadith related by Imam Abu Isa Tirmidhi, the Prophet, peace be upon him, is reported to have said, So, so Ibn Adam in this hadith uh, is the exact equivalent of the Hebrew Ben Adam, which is equivalent to the Aramaic Bar Inash. It simply means a human being. Ya Ibn Adam, O human being. And this obviously includes the female gender uh, as well. Now, uh, Christians claim that, that the Son of Man, okay, uh, the human being described in Daniel 7, uh, is to be worshipped as God, uh, because he is God, essentially, according to them. Uh, he's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God who became man. And so once again, uh, and not surprisingly, Christians want to superimpose their Trinitarianism upon a rigidly monotheistic Hebrew text, and by doing so, they impute their shirk, their avodah upon the prophet Daniel, as if the prophet Daniel recognized the, the divinity of the Son of Man, as if the prophet uh, Daniel had a vision um, of, of the second person of, of a triune God. So this is unequivocal blasphemy. Uh, and as I said in previous discussions, uh, this Christian eisegetical method uh, destroys the plain and obvious meanings of the Tanakh's theological pesuchim. So God is not a man, nor is he the son of man. Well, who says that? Well, according to Christians, Jesus says this, because according to Christian claim, Jesus revealed the Torah to Moses, right? Let's, let's go back again to our theological anchor, Numbers 23, 19, and I make it a point to mention this verse in every single podcast. God is not a man, that he should lie, meaning a man who claims to be God is a liar. And the verse continues, uven adam, Uven Adam Vietnacham, nor is God the Son of Man, that he should repent. This is called synonymic parallelism. So it's very common in Semitic rhetoric. The purpose is emphasis. So no Ish or Ben Adam, they're synonymous, meaning human being is God, period. But this also in this verse, as well as in the rhetoric of the Tanakh in general, there's antithetic parallelism. So Ish and El are opposites. Ki Anuchi El, Velo Ish says Hosea. So man and God are opposites. Ben Adam and Ale are opposites. And if a reader of the Tanakh does not understand its rhetoric, then he will make grave mistakes in interpretation, uh, like Matthew does. I mean, Zechariah 9.9, right, says that the king of Zion uh, will come riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt, right? I mean, it's just one donkey. This is parallelism. Matthew didn't notice this 
and he had Jesus ride two donkeys on two animals simultaneously, which is rather painful. I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, he's he's, he's riding. He's <laughs> sitting on two donkeys, you know. But anyway, here's my contention regarding Daniel chapter seven, and and I'll save you the suspense. I'll give you my contention now, and then I'll show you how I got there. The Bar Enash, right, the son of a human being mentioned in Daniel seven thirteen. Uh, the one whom uh, Daniel saw in his famous night vision, the one who was brought near to God, says Daniel, and is given deen, which is the exact Aramaic word used in the text. Deen is also an Arabic word. And remember, the, the Arabic word uh, deen is most equivalent uh, to the word mishpat mentioned in Isaiah 42, according to Jesenius. Remember, the evid of Isaiah 42 will bring deen, divine religion, to the ummiyin, to the goyim, the Gentiles. This son of man of Daniel's vision is most coherently identified, in my opinion, as the Gentile prophet and messenger of the Abrahamic restoration, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his nation, his ummah, <clears throat> or in the words of the Quran, Muhammad waladina ma'ahu. Okay, so according to Daniel, the, the, the nation of the son of man will decisively vanquish the fourth beast of Daniel's vision. So what is the fourth beast? We'll get into all of that. So, you know, hold on to your kufis, your hijabs, and your yarmulkes. So this is going to be a long and bumpy ride. Uh, in, in addition to this, I will demonstrate, I'll at least try to demonstrate, how both the Jewish and Christian positions uh, regarding the identity of the Son of Man are simply untenable. And basically, the Jewish position is that the Son of Man is, is Israel in general as a nation, or more specifically, the highly anticipated, uh, yet always belated, the, the Melech HaMashiach ben David, right? The Davidic uh, King Messiah, who is yet to come, according to them. Uh, and even though he tarries, I shall wait, said Maimonides 800 years ago. Uh, the Christians also contend that the Son of Man is the Davidic King Messiah, uh, but that he already came, and that he was Yeshua HaNutzri, Jesus the Nazarene. Peace be upon him. Of course, Jesus was neither uh, the literal descendant of David, nor the literal son of a man, right? The virgin birth precludes both of these claims. Uh, however, if we take Adam to simply mean human being, right? Ben Adam, uh, then Jesus is uh, the son of a human being. He's the son of Mary. Uh, to say that son of man means God is ridiculous. It's like saying man means woman, uh, which unfortunately <laughs> a lot of people are accepting nowadays. Up means down, black means white. So words have definitions, right? A definition delimits or demarcates something. If, I mean, if, if, if words lose their definitions, then we lose all meaning. Then anything can mean anything, and we might as well uh, stop talking. So son of man does not mean God. God does not mean son of man. They are opposites. Now, Christians will, will point out that in the Gospels, okay, Jesus, uh, peace be upon him, uh, seemingly refers to himself uh, as the son of man on multiple occasions. And I agree with that. The, the New Testament, Jesus obviously does do that. Uh, but, of course, it's not nearly this simple. Uh, the New Testament, Jesus also predicts another son of man to come in the future. And Jesus talks about him in the third person and clearly in distinction to himself. Mm. So historically, this has been a very, very sticky and enigmatic topic. No, nobody really knows <laughs> what's precisely going on here with the son of man passages. Okay, so we'll try to unpack uh, some of these things will only scratch the surface, and obviously we can only speculate and try to connect uh, some of the dots. Okay, so I, I want to begin sort of uh, setting the table, as it were, theologically, okay? So I mentioned in a previous podcast that, that Paul's Christology 
Um, not you, Paul. Paul of Tar Paul of Tarsus. <laughs> you Paul have of a Tarsus. by the way, but it's not the same as the Apostle Paul's, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Paul's Christology, in essence, was a composite of Jewish and Greek ideas. Okay, that is to say, Jewish and pagan beliefs. And by pagan, I simply mean non-Jewish. So I'm not using the word uh, pagan necessarily in a derogatory sense. Okay, so Paul created this new uh, hybrid religion, and religion in the Hellenistic world tended to be syncretistic. I mean, they would mix and match different elements. This was normal. And Paul was schooled in Hellenistic philosophy. Paul quoted pagan poets, according to the New Testament, to support his Christology. He quoted pagan poets in the New Testament to support his Christology. This is something that Christian apologists don't like to talk about. And most casual Bible readers are not even aware of this. They just read the text. They don't know what Paul's saying. Paul quoted the Phinomena's hymn to Zeus by the pagan poet and Stoic, Eretus of Soli, according to Acts 17, 28 at the Oropicus. And he also quoted the poet Menander in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. I mean, talk about the satanic verses. Huh, whoops. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Mm. Um, <laughs> Paul made Christ, right, the Jewish Messiah, the locus, the intersection of two pagan beliefs. So Christ is both the dying and rising Savior man-God, as well as the divine mediator between the God and humanity. And by the God, I mean the perfect being who is at the top of this ontological hierarchy or pyramid that permeates all existence. So this, this hierarchy or, or chain of being is absolutely central to both middle and neoplatonism. Okay, and, and I wanna make a request of the audience to study middle and neoplatonism and you will come to know the true origins of the Trinity. I mean, Christian apologists will say that the doctrine of the Trinity is firmly grounded in the Tanakh. In my view, that's a red herring. Uh, they want to throw you off the scent of Greek metaphysics. I mean, study Philo of Alexandria, okay? So he was a Jewish Middle Platonic philosopher living in Egypt in the first century. He died around 40 of the Common Era before the writing of the New Testament. Okay, there's no doubt that Philo's writings influenced the doctrine of the Trinity in a significant way. Even William Lane Craig admits this. You know, Dr. Craig is their champion, the Christian apologist. You know, they love him. The early uh, Christian Greek fathers, they used Philo's writings <clears throat> as a basis with which to formulate their Logos Christology. People like uh, Justin and Irenaeus, Eusebius, who was Constantine's sort of spin doctor, uh, even claimed that Philo met Peter. Right? I mean, it's a total fabrication. I mean, this was Eusebius's way of bolstering Philo's authority, similar to Paul claiming that he met with Peter uh, and James. Maybe he did. I mean, it doesn't end well, according to Acts 21. But Craig says that the dogma at Nicaea was, quote, a synthesis between John's gospel and the thought of Philo of Alexandria and the middle Platonism that he represented, end quote. I mean, I would go even further and say that uh, John's gospel itself was clearly influenced by middle Platonism. Oh, yeah. so, so, so Dr. Craig even downplays, in my opinion, the reality of the vast influence that Greek metaphysics had on both Christian doctrine and Christian scripture. And we'll, and we'll see that. Okay. Well, this, so, this, so, is common, this is a commonplace in um, historical theologies. It's not just you and William Lane Craig. This is very, very standard uh, understanding right. and explanation of the origins of the way the doctrine is formulated. Uh, yeah, this yeah. is very, very standard, very, yeah. very standard across the board, right? Um, so any honest historian or theologian, you know, they will point this out. 
So, so, so according to this platonic metaphysical system, at the top of this hierarchy of being is the one, right? Tahen, as Plotinus uh, referred to him. The, the church father Origen of Alexandria called him the autotheos, right? The very God. And of course, Philo called him hatheos with the definite article, the God. And this is also what John's gospel calls the father, hatheos, okay, with the definite article. Um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the author of John's gospel never refers to Jesus or the son as hatheos in an absolute and unqualified way. And Thomas's so-called confession in John 20 is not an exception to this. So John refers to Jesus as the Logos and a theos, a God. So if you look at John 1, 1, right? N-R-K, ain halagos. Kai halagos prastan theon, right? So, so in the beginning was the word and the word was with the God. Tan is a definite article here in the accusative. Tan theon, kai theos, and a God was the Logos. So Middle Platonism explains what John meant here much more coherently than Tanakhi Judaism or Trinitarianism. In Middle Platonism, the Logos was believed to be the second God, a second level of being who is generated from uh, within the one himself in pre-eternality. So since the Logos was generated or caused by the God, the Logos is not as great as the God. The Logos is the divine mediator between the God and humanity. Hence, you know, the Father is greater than I, says John's incarnated Logos. Yet he also says the Father and I are one. So, so Christian apologists, armed with the nomenclature of Nicaea, uh, they went back to these texts and said, oh, okay, when he said the Father is greater than I, the Logos was talking about his hypostasis, his person. But when he said the Father and I are one, he was referring to his usia, his essence. So they incorporate this, this convoluted language and retroactively import uh, a Trinitarian hermeneutic upon, John, upon John's gospel and thus completely decontextualize it. I mean, it's a nice little sleight of hand, but read John in its context. Right? John's underlying metaphysic is middle Platonism. Mm. And in fact, uh, 70 years before John wrote about the Logos, Philo wrote about the Logos, and Philo referred to the Logos as a second god, deuteros theos, and Origen would use the same phrase some 200 years later, but still before Nicaea. You know, he said the father is autotheos, the very God, the son. It's an important God. point because the very language that John uses actually has a precedent in, um, in the pagan language found on the lips of Philo of Alexandria. So it's not a, it, it's this continuity, this connection is really important, I think. It is very important. And, you know, Origen also, he uses, like you said, he uses that phrase from Philo, deuteros theos, Hmm. That the Logos is a second God. The Johann and Jesus, right, uh, or John's Logos, refers to his father as Theon Mu, my God, right? my God. So in, in Mark and Matthew, Jesus, you know, the cry of dereliction, Elahi, Elahi, Lama Sabathani, my God, my God. So the Logos, who's supposed to be God, capital G, according to Trinitarians, has a God. So this is clearly two gods. And, and both men, Philo and Origen, they hail from Alexandria. And, you know, the name says it all. You know, this is why Imam al-Ghazali vehemently condemned the metaphysical positions of the Hellenistic Muslim philosophers of his day because he recognized that platonic metaphysics acted as a gateway to the theological deviations and idolatry of the people of the book, both Jews and Christians of the past, not just Christians, no, but no. also Jews. And no. as I said, for Philo, the Logos was the highest of the intermediary beings, okay? The begotten son of God, he says. Philo says. He says his firstborn. He says 
the celestial high priest, right, who is often symbolized in the Tanakh by an angel, all right, this is according to Philo, the Logos as the mind of God, as it were, was neither uh, uncreated in the same sense as the God, nor created in the same sense as the cosmos. The Logos was caused from the very essence of the God, uh, meaning the Logos was eternally generated, i.e. begotten, not made, before all the ages. Sounds very, very familiar. Sounds like the Nicene Creed. You know, Justin Martyr, the father of Logos theology, he, he admits that there are disturbing parallels between his Christology and the pagan myths of Bacchus, that's Dionysus, and, and, and Hercules, and, and Asclepius, and Perseus, and Mithras. And in his dialogue with Trifo, Justin accounts for these similarities by claiming, well, the devil sort of emulated the prophecies of Christ by inventing these sort of fake fables about yeah. their pagan gods in order to cause Christians to go astray. I mean, Justin also says that the angel that Jacob wrestled in Genesis and beat, no less, was the pre-incarnate Christ, the Logos. So, so John 1.1 1, 1 is the beginning of the prologue of John's gospel. That's called the hymn to the Logos. How does the hymn end, right? So the most authentic reading, according to New Testament textual critics, like the United Bible Society, Nestle Allen, and so on and so forth, is the following. So it's John 1.18, right? John 1.18, that's the end of the hymn to the Logos. It says, Theon udes, heoraken popate. So no one has ever seen God. And the context clearly suggests that John is talking about the first level of being, the Father, the God. Because then he says, monogenes theos, a unique God, a one-of-a-kind God, a uniquely generated God. Now John is talking about the Logos. The Logos is another God because he was seen. The first God he mentioned has never been seen, right? The monogenes theos, it's, it goes on to say, who is in the heart of the Father, it says, ekenas exegesato, that one exegetes or explains or reveals the Father. So the Son is the divine mediator. And then John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. The Son is a savior man-god, a human sacrifice. So then the second level of being, referred to as the Logos by middle Platonic writers, such as Philo and John, is still a divine being. He is a theos, he's a god, but he's not ha-theos, he's not the God or the auto-theos, the very God. So this is called henotheistic polytheism, okay? This is not the yechiduth, this is not the Unitarian, you know, monotheism of the Tanakh, uh, nor is this the Trinitarian monotheism of the fourth century of the common era. This is henotheistic polytheism. This is what the Gospels and Pauline epistles teach in my view, okay? The Gospels suffused with Greek ideas and influenced by Paul's gospel, teach that Jesus is another God, a lesser God, who mediates between the unseen perfect being and humanity by becoming a human sacrifice. So he is the son of God, not God the son, right? And of course, Paul wrote 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5, really that's pseudo-Paul, right? 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. But this represents Paul's thinking, uh, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So we have the mediating logos dying for our sins. Now, Paul never referred to the mediator as the logos, but clearly this is the concept he has in mind. Paul uh, did refer to Christ as the wisdom of God, theosophion. And of course, Philo had already identified chokmah in the Old Testament, divine wisdom, uh, as being the logos explicitly, right? Like in Proverbs chapter eight, right? The, the personified and expressive 
Logos, according to Philo, spoke of its origin. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his work of creation. I was poured forth from eternity, from, from before the creation of the earth. Uh, and Paul, being a highly Hellenized Jew that he was, echoed this Philonic uh, sentiment. I mean, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that he was speaking of the wisdom of God and mystery, which was ordained by God before the ages of our glory. In the, in the Pseudo-Pauline book of Colossians, the author said, and he, the son, is before all things, and by him all things are held together. This is Middle Platonism. This is Stoicism. Okay. Additionally, and again in imitation of Middle Platonism, Paul envisioned a henotheistic and hierarchical scheme of divinity with God our Father at the top, and then the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, i.e. the Logos, just below him. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he says, Pantas andros e kephale ha Christas este. So he says, the head of every man is Christ. Kephale de gunekas ha aner. And the head of, of the woman is the man, right? So the feminists, they don't, they don't like this verse. Kephale de Christo ha It's an extraordinary passage because the hierarchy, the divine hierarchy and the human hierarchy is, is ontological. We're, we're dealing here with Jesus after his resurrection, after the ascension. This is yeah. the theology that Paul really believes in. And that is God, Christ, and then subservient to that man and woman. And uh, exactly. it is, there's nothing Trinitarian about it at all. On the contrary, yeah. it is, it is as you say. Exactly. It's a hierarchy of being. And the head of Christ is ha theos, he says at the end. Exactly. The God. Yes. Okay, the Father is the God. Jesus Christ is the Lord. These two are not ontologically equal for Paul. Okay, and, and like, just, just say, uh, so, just so people understand here how Christians deal with this. Uh, I've, uh, I've had the honor and the privilege also to speak to Professor Dale Martin from uh, Yale University. He's one of the, the world's great uh, New Testament scholars. He's also a Christian theologian and a Trinitarian. And he discusses this very, very passage and how he deals with it in his uh, most uh, recent work, which is addressed to these whole, all these hermeneutical issues. How do we, how do we be Trinitarian Christians in the light of what you're saying, Dr. Aliotai? And he says, well, when you read passages like that, what you do is you read them in a Trinitarian way and you insert the, the son and father language. You understand it in that way. You read it in a Trinitarian way. So he's very explicit, he's very open and candid about what you do. You don't take Paul's meaning, you take the later meaning and you read it in. And, yeah, and he's, I mean, he's very open about it. He's very, yeah, he's very honest and open. That's exactly how, how you read it. I mean, on, on the surface, the plain meaning here is very clear. You know, the one who has authority over Christ, a God, is the God. And this is further made clear by Paul's statement. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephos or the world or life or death or things now or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Yeah. <clears throat> right? It's very good. Right. Finally, we read in, 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 in the Pseudo-Pauline book of Ephesians, the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ. The God, just think about this thing. The God of our Lord. Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Again, in John, the Logos, the Johan and Jesus, refers to the Father as my God, as well as the only one who is truly God in, in John 17, 3. Of course, Trinitarians will disagree with these assertions. They will quote Paul's famous hymn to Christ in Philippians 2 as being sort of a proof text of their position that Paul maintained that Christ was essentially equal to God. So Paul said, uh, uh, he said that Jesus Christ, he said, being in the form of God, did not think it was robbery to be equal with God. But, but here's a problem. If, if Christ was God, 
V-God, why would he even consider the notion that it was robbery to be equal to himself? This is nonsense. You, you see, Paul was neither a Trinitarian nor a Unitarian. Okay, so from, from the greater context of the passage, I mean, it's clear that Paul believed that Christ was somehow divine, in fact, worthy of worship. Uh, it seems to me that when Paul wrote that Christ was both the morphe theu, the form of a god, and the morphe dulu, the form of a servant, he meant a physical god, a deity in the appearance of human flesh. However, Christ as Lord and Savior did not consider it robbery to be equal to the God precisely because he was not the God. Christ was the divine Son of God, whose level of authority on earth was equal to the God because the latter sent him to communicate his will, to die for the sins of humanity. So for Paul, Christ was not equal to God. Uh, sorry, Christ was equal to God, but not identical to God. And this is a very, very crucial distinction. I'll say it again. For Paul, Christ was equal to God, but not identical. Okay, therefore, Paul was a Hellenized, you know, Jewish, you know, soft polytheist, a henotheist, really. He was neither a Trinitarian nor a Unitarian. Now, the major difference be between Paul and John on one side and Philo on the other is that Paul and John believed that the wisdom or the logos had incarnated into human flesh as a Jewish Messiah, while Philo did not speak of specific incarnations. But Philo did say that the meaning of the statement, man was made in the image of God, he said that man was made in the image of the second God, the Logos, right? Adam was made in the, uh, uh, Adam was not made in the image of the God because the God is the supreme and absolutely transcendent mystery. You know, just as John said, no one has ever, no one has ever seen God because he is the absolutely transcendent mystery. The Logos who is seen reveals him. So even there, there's a bit of a similarity. And just one last thing before we get to, to Daniel, I'm sort of laying down this sort of, uh, theological uh, um, uh, foundation here is that, and this is all related to Daniel and the Son of Man, by the way, I'll get to that. In my view, and this is something that maybe uh, many Muslim du'at, many, many Muslim callers to the faith will not agree with, okay? In my view, Jesus is portrayed as a divine being, a God, in all four Gospels in the New Testament. Okay, this is my view, that he is the divine Son of God and Savior who will eventually judge mankind in all four Gospels. This is how the Gospels present him. He's not the God, right? The closest he gets to the God is in John, but he never actually reaches him. Uh, the, the New Testament, Jesus is clearly inferior to the God, whom he calls the Father, but he's also clearly not just a man, okay? So the Gospels were not written by Trinitarians, that's anachronistic, nor were they written by Pharisaic Jews, nor were they written by Jamesonian, you know, Nazarenes or Ebionites. So I don't believe that the four Gospels are teaching a theology that is totally consistent with Islam or Unitarian Christianity or traditional uh, Judaism. I believe that Jesus attains divine status in different ways in the Gospels, right? But nonetheless, he is a divine being in all four Gospels, right? Yeah, so, you know, you know how it is in Mark. Well, yeah, Martin Ehrman has uh, explained this in great detail. The, the, Jesus right. is God in some sense, and this is a crucial caveat. Yeah. Uh, nowhere is Jesus Yahweh in any of the Gospels, but he, yeah. he, according to the understandings of the use of this language in the Greco-Roman world and even in Judaism at the time, there, the language of divinity was very elastic and could and did apply to human beings as well. And, and within that kind of matrix, Jesus does find a setting, but not as Yahweh. Jesus is never Yahweh in the New Testament, he would say. Yeah. Yeah, and we do see that evolution of Christology in the gospel. I mean, the earlier the gospel, 
the, the later Jesus becomes the divine son of God in the timeline, or to put it another way, the later the gospel, the earlier Jesus becomes yes. divine. Yes. Now, the, under, the underlying influences of Mark's gospel, which is the earliest of the quartet, are Greek metaphysics, Enochic tradition, and Pauline Christology. So Judaism is very much sort of in the back row. It's just kind of a veneer. Uh, the disciples in Mark are, are totally inept, unable to understand anything. You know, they're cowards who forsake Jesus and flee. Why? Uh, because they're Jews. Mark is making a statement here. Um, you will not understand Jesus, at least his Jesus, the Markan Jesus, through Jewish eyes. You need Greco-Roman eyes. And at the end of Mark, it is a Roman centurion who confesses, you know, at the foot of the cross, truly this man was a son of God. You, you see, he gets it, not the Jewish disciples. In yeah. Mark, Mary and Jesus' family think he's insane. You know, if Mary was visited by an angel, why does she think Jesus was insane? Why? Because she was a Jew. So Mark is telling us that, that Jesus is the son of God really in a Greco-Roman sense. Now, what is the Roman conception of a son of God? You know, Augustus was called the son of God. He was a divine being, but no Roman believed that Augustus was equal in all respects to Jupiter, to Zeus, who is the God. Okay, so keep that in mind. So, so, so when we study um, Jewish history, we see that, that pre-Christian North African and Palestinian Judaism had already been significantly influenced by Greek metaphysics ever since the beginning of the Hellenistic period in the fourth century BCE. So Philo and Paul and John, they're just sort of the tip of the iceberg. The invasion of all things Greek in Palestine uh, even led to a massive uh, inter-Jewish conflict, right? With Maccabean purists on one side, and then the, the Syro-Grecian, the, you know, the Seleucid Empire, along with their Jewish sympathizers on the other side. I mean, there were Jewish men, I don't know how on earth they were able to do this, but there were Jewish men who reversed their circumcisions so yeah, that they could look they, like they, Greeks. Yeah, they could wrestle in the gymnasium and stuff. I never got that, but I thought, best not yeah. to probe too much into these details, but somehow they did it. So, somehow they managed to pull it off, some kind well, of not, reconstructive so, yeah. surgery, and they were able to like, you know, wrestle in the gymnasium, compete in the Greek Olympics. Yeah. In the end, the Maccabees gained the upper hand, at least politically. Yep. And in 164 BCE, the temple was repaired and cleansed and rededicated to God. Thus, Hanukkah was born. Okay. So, so now let's talk about uh, Daniel. So the general consensus of modern scholars is that right around this time, 167 to 164 BCE, the second half of Daniel, the second yep. half of the book of Daniel was written. Yeah, uh, which described what's known as the shikutz shomeim, which is the which is an abomination that causes desertion or causes one to desolate. be awestruck. It's often translated as uh, the abomination of desolation. Yeah. Now, according to most scholars, this refers to the Seleucid king Antiochus or Antiochus, however you want to pronounce his name, yeah. uh, Antiochus the fourth, when he erected a statue of Zeus uh, on the In temple the ground. itself. Yeah, 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 and he and he slaughtered a pig apparently. Um, However, even after the Maccabean victory, the allure of, of Platonic metaphysics continued to seduce Jewish thinkers in the region well into the Christian era. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I want to mention before we continue is the issue of the dating of the book of Daniel. Okay. So conservative Christians and Orthodox Jews believe that the prophet Daniel wrote the book of Daniel in the 6th century BCE. So the, the book yeah. of Daniel is 12 chapters. Chapters 2 through 7 were written in Aramaic, okay? So then chapter 1 and chapters 8 through 12 were written in Hebrew. 
Of course, Aramaic and Hebrew are both Semitic languages and, and thus very close. Interestingly, chapters two through seven, right? So the Aramaic section, they form a literary structure called the chiasmus, a type of mirror parallelism, right? Like ABC, CBA, right? Like that. And this very common structure in Semitic rhetoric. So that is evidence of a single author. But, but the question is, were the Jews widely speaking Aramaic in the sixth century BCE? Maybe, maybe not. And here I recommend the scholarship of uh, Dr. John J. Collins, who is a specialist in Hellenistic Judaism. Oh, oh, and, and oh John J. Collins is coming on Blogging Theology in a couple of weeks' time, by the oh, way. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> he's, he's, a, well, I've, uh, he's the world's e the foremost expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls, Professor Voltes yes. at Harvard University. He's a really, I'm just so thrilled. Anyway, uh, he, we'll be speaking to him soon, God willing. Yeah, he's a really unique guy, too, his personality and the way he speaks also. But yeah, like you said, Hellenistic Judaism, Jewish apoc uh, apocalypticism, and his commentary on Daniel, which is part of the Hermeneia commentary series, is, is just beautiful. I mean, it's used at the, the graduate school level. I think his work is definitive when it comes to the uh, historical features of Daniel. Okay, so it's, it's been established that the book of Daniel uses later Aramaic linguistic features. And, and he mentions this, like vocabulary, forms of nouns, forms of pronouns. When I say later, I mean later than the sixth century BCE, much later, in fact. Now, how did scholars establish this? By comparing, so in 1962, a corpus of Aramaic legal documents was discovered in Samaria. And that was dated to the fourth century BCE. It's called the Samaria Papyri. Right, so Collins and, and many others concluded that the Aramaic of Daniel is, is later than that of the Samaria papyri. The Aramaic of Daniel is, is, is even later than the Aramaic of Ezra, the book of Ezra. Uh, however, when compared to the Aramaic of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Daniel's linguistics are slightly older, slightly more archaic. Uh, but still, argues Collins, uh, the Aramaic of Daniel is much closer to the Dead Sea Scrolls than it is to the Samaria papyri. Also, the linguistic features of the Hebrew of Daniel strongly suggest a date much later than the 6th century BCE. So this is a general consensus. And once again, just as we saw with Deuteronomy and Isaiah, there is a huge disparity between what historians say about Daniel's uh, dating and what confessional uh, Jews and Christians say about it. Big, big difference. I mean, uh, they're centuries apart. In America, we would say they're not even in the same ballpark. Right. I don't know if you use that expression in UK, probably not. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we do now these days, like many Americanisms have seeped into England. But anyway, <laughs> it's, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, now, now, chapters one through six of Daniel, okay, are yeah. stories. Their genre is, is narrative uh, and, and they're told in the third person. Uh, most scholars date their composition to the end of the third century BCE. And chapters seven through 12 are visions, uh, unveilings. The genre is called apocalypse. And they're told in the first person, and most scholars date their composition to between 167 and 164 BCE. Uh, Dr. Christine Hayes at Yale, she points out that there are, quote, tremendous historical inaccuracies in Daniel. Okay, for example, uh, the book of Daniel says that uh, Belshazzar was a king, a melech of Babylon, but he was never a king. He was a prince regent. Also, he, he was not defeated by Darius the Mede. Who, who is that? Who's Darius the Mede? As the book of Daniel says, he was defeated by Cyrus the Persian. Uh, historians uh, point out many other things as well. And Hayes also points out that ancient apocalyptic literature was usually pseudonymous. In other words, a later writer would pretend 
to be an eminent uh, figure, a prophet or patriarch of the distant past. In other words, a forgery, right? I mean, we see this with apocalyptic writings attributed to Adam and Enoch and Abraham as well. Now, as a Muslim, then, if I'm going to take the position that the, that the book of Daniel contains true prophecy, how do I square that with the historical consensus regarding Daniel, as well as with the Quran's claim that b- the biblical text has suffered a degree of textual corruption? Well, in my view, it's quite simple. The book of Daniel was indeed written well after the 6th century BCE. I mean, this is where almost all of the evidence points. Okay, so I do not believe that a, a prophet wrote the book of Daniel. Okay, the, the author, whoever it was, got some of the historical details wrong because he was not an inspired writer and he, he was writing about events many centuries later. Uh, however, he must have preserved many of the actual inspired words of the prophet Daniel. And that's, again, speculation. But if we're going to take this position, this, this is going to be how I'm going to look at it. So, so just like I did with Isaiah, I think I'm taking a more sort of reasonable position with respect to Daniel, because I believe in prophecy and I take, but I also take historical consensus into consideration. So is historical consensus always right? No, but, but we would need good reasons, historical, logical, literary, and otherwise in order to oppose it. So this is unlike the fundamentalists on the one hand, who just ignore decades and decades of research of, of Danielic historians, and then you have sort of r- really rigid secular historians on the other hand who do not even entertain the notion of prophecy, okay? So let's get into the, the text of Daniel a little bit. The author of Daniel told us that in the first year of the, of the rule of King Belshazzar, so he means something like 538, uh, 537 BCE, something like that, according to the historical timeline. He says the prophet Daniel experienced a fantastic vision by night in which he saw four distinct beasts coming up from the sea, okay? And he described the first beast as being ka'arye in, in the Aramaic, uh, like an ari, ka'asad, right? Like a lion uh, with, e- with eagle's wings. The second was ledov, he says, like a bear, kadub in Arabic, with three ribs in its mouth. The third was kinmar, like a leopard, kenemir, with, with four heads and, and four wings on its back. And the fourth beast was a terrifying monster uh, with iron teeth and ten horns. Now, Daniel said that he saw a qedin za'ira, right, a little horn spring up among the ten horns, causing three other horns to be torn out by the roots. This horn had eyes like a man. Um, it was uh, speaking great words, meaning pompous, arrogant, even blasphemous uh, words. And then after experiencing something like a beatific vision of God, uh, whom Daniel calls the Ancient of Days, the Atik Yomin, meaning the Eternal One, Daniel saw millions of ministering angels, the vanquishing of the first three beasts, as well as the eventual death and destruction of the fourth beast, who is yet speaking the great things, right? And the next two verses are key. So there's verse 13 and 14, Daniel 7. So Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like a son of man, right? Kavar Inash came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And then he says in the Aramaic, he says, uh, shultan. And he, meaning the son of man, was given authority, viqar and honor, and, and rulership 
וכל עמיה ומיה ולישניה ליפלחון. He says, so that all, all people, all nations and all languages should obey him. And it continues, his authority is an everlasting authority, which shall not come to an end, and his rulership shall never be destroyed. So we notice as Muslims how close Quranic Arabic is actually, uh, is, is to Danielic Aramaic. So Bar Inash, Ibn Nas, or Ibn Insan, Ibn Adam, Atik Yomin, right? Atik, Atik Al-Ayyam, Shultan is Sultan, Yaqar is Waqar, so on and so forth. Lishaneya is Al-Sina. But here's a big question. What did Daniel himself intend by the phrase son of man, Bar Inash? Um, did he intend the Davidic Messiah? Uh, the name David does not appear once in the entire book of Daniel. Um, the word Messiah does not appear in chapter 7. Uh, did he intend a, an angel, a, a divine being of some sort? Some of the above? None of the above? Now, the Christian claim is obvious, right? The Christian claim is that the Son of Man is Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, or rather the Christian Jesus, the Jesus of Christian faith. And as we said, Son of Man is a title that, uh, that Jesus gives to himself in the New Testament. I'll come back to that later. Uh, Christians further claim that the Aramaic verb, yiflachun, in, in uh, Daniel 7.14, this is from Pelach, should actually be rendered as worship rather than obey or serve, right? So the King, the King James Version famously has worshipped, literally, in its translation. Yes. But I noticed in, in, in modern translations like the, uh, the NRSV, a standard academic one, um, yeah. it doesn't uh, have worship. It has serve or obey as serve. you put it. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's quickly uh, lay the Christian claims to rest about this verb before we continue. So, so here's, here's the Christian argument in a nutshell. The verb pelach is used nine times in the Tanakh, all in Daniel. Okay, In seven of those verses, it is used to denote the worship of deities, <laughs> of gods. While in two places, Daniel 7, 14 and 21, it's used to denote the service or obedience rendered mm -hmm. unto the Son of Man. Therefore, consistency demands that the meaning be worship here as well. In other words, the Son of Man is worthy of actual worship as God, or perhaps a divine being. So that's, that's the argument. Seems like a good argument. Now let me tell you why the Christian argument is wrong, with all due respect. Uh, the translators of Daniel, probably working before the Christian era, rendered the original Aramaic, Yiflachun, into the Greek, Duleosusin, uh, uh, from, the, from, the, uh, from the word doulos, meaning a servant. This is precisely why most English translations, as you said, read serve. Even the gospel authors record Jesus repeatedly using the word doulos to denote a servant who serves a human master. Of course, the word, the word doulos in, in normal ancient Greek means slave, actually. Uh, it, it can be euphemistically translated as servant. It also means slave normally. Um, right. Slave, yeah, exactly. So, slave. So, here, so here I would argue that, that, that overarching theological consistency must override the argument for linguistic consistency. I mean, if I said, I revere God, and I revere my mother, I'm not using the, the verb revere in the same sense in both places. So, so translating yiflachun as serve or obey in the context of the Son of Man is much more theologically consistent and contextually coherent than to suggest that the prophet Daniel was indicating that someone other than the Ancient of Days will be worshipped as a divine being. I mean, that's idolatry. Uh, but speaking of linguistics, uh, Jesenius mentions that the Hebrew verb avad is equivalent in meaning to the Aramaic pelach, 
Okay. Now, if you look at Jeremiah 27, 7, Jeremiah says about Nebuchadnezzar. He says, He says, all nations will serve him. And that's the verb avad. So Jeremiah is not saying that all nations are going to worship Nebuchadnezzar as God. I mean, that's ridiculous. They will serve him. They'll, they will obey him. But I think the clincher is in the, the book of Psalms. So Psalm 146, 3. Psalm 146.3, it says, do not trust in princes. Do not trust in princes. Adam lo Nor trust in the son of man in whom there is no help. Psalm 146.3, do not trust the son of man. He cannot help you. No human being. This is what the psalm is saying. No human being, no son of man can help you, right? So if we say in our prayer, When we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, only you, we worship, only you, we ask for help. We seek supernatural help only from God. The, the Hebrew word here for help is teshua, which is translated in Greek as soteria, which means salvation. There is no salvation in the Son of Man, only in God, meaning the Son of Man is not divine. I mean, this is what the psalm is literally saying. The Son of Man cannot save you. He needs to be saved. He's not the Savior. He needs a Savior. Uh, and so God obviously is not the Son of Man. God is God. Man is man. Okay. Now, chapter 7 uh, then tells us that, that Daniel was initially like totally perplexed about this vision, right? Therefore, he decided to ask one of the angels. It says literally one of the standing ones, Qa'ameya or Qa'imun, about its interpretation. And the word for interpretation here in, in Aramaic is fashar, which is related to the Arabic word tafsir. So Daniel was told that the four beasts are four kings. Okay, he says, Arba'a malchin, four kings that shall arise in the earth. Now, with, with respect to the ten horns of the fourth beast specifically, uh, the angel who was later identified as Gabriel or Jibril, Gabriel, he, he tells Daniel that there are also 10 kings and that the little horn, the Qadan Za'ira, shall rise after them. Okay, the little horn who will speak, you know, these great things, it says, will fight against the saints of the Most High, the Qadishay El Yonin, and oppress them by changing their sacred times and laws. The saints will live under his control for time times and half a time, mm. okay? But eventually the saints will destroy the horn and consume his dominion. Then all rulership and authority under the entire sky will be given to the saints of the Most High and all peoples will obey him, i.e. the Son of Man. Okay, now, according to Jewish, according to the Jewish exegetical tradition, who are the four beasts specifically? Who is the Son of Man? And who is the little horn specifically? So the exegesis of Daniel, uh, completed by Rashi, uh, represents uh, what most Orthodox Jewish authorities uh, believe today. So according to Rashi, the four beasts symbolize four kingdoms or empires that will oppress the Jewish people. So the lion is Babylon, the bear is Persia, the three ribs in the mouth of the bear are three Persian kings, the leopard is Greece, the four wings and heads of the leopard refer to the division of Alexander's kingdom into four provinces with each ruled by one of his uh, successors. The fourth beast, right, the terrifying monster is the Roman Empire. Okay, now Rashi further stated that the 10th king of Rome was Vespasian, 
who destroyed the temple. So he's the 10th horn. And the terrible Qadin Za'ira, the, the little horn, was Vespasian's eventual successor, Titus, who was the general who led the attack upon the temple in 70 of the Common Era. And as Rashi says, blasphemed and entered the Haikal, the temple, with arrogance. And Rashi also mentioned that this was the opinion of the Talmudic rabbis. And Rashi also said that Titus also intended to cause the Israelites to transgress in the matter of their sacred holidays and laws. Okay, so that's the standard Jewish opinion. Now, when it comes to the identity of the son of man, the Bar Enash, mentioned in verse 13, uh, Rashi said, Hu Melech HaMashiach, right? He is the King Messiah. Now, concerning verse 14, the very next verse, however, Rashi said that the Son of Man was Israel, likened to a man. So which is it, the Messiah or Israel? Now, Orthodox rabbis defend Rashi's opinion and point out that there's no contradiction in his statements, right? So in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man is clearly being contrasted uh, with four beasts that all symbolize various nations. Uh, for Rashi, the final nation to come, Israel, is likened to a human being because Israel is, in his words, humble and innocent. Israel is the most humane and merciful when compared to the other nations who are animalistic and ungodly. Therefore, according to the Jewish understanding, uh, just as the previous nations were led by various kings and rulers, the nation of Israel will also be led by their king, the Melech HaMashiach Ben David, the Davidic King Messiah. So for them, the Messiah is really part and parcel to the coming Israelite nation who will destroy the fourth beast and rule the world. His authority will be universal. All peoples will serve and obey him. The Messiah will be the final and definitive religious leader of the whole world. So that's, that's the Jewish position in a nutshell. Now, does Daniel 7 say David or Messiah? No. Did Isaiah 42 say David or Messiah? No. Does Isaiah 53 say David or Messiah? No, this is speculation. Now, it was the last part of verse 25 that really puzzled Rashi. Okay, so this is Daniel 7, 25. He called it an obscure ending about which the commentators hold diverse views. So this was concerning the phrase in Aramaic. It says, Iddan v'iddanin uflag iddan. Time, times, and half a time. Right? That the saints will live under the control of the little horn for time, times, and half a time, or three and a half times. What does this mean? So the book of Daniel contains several numbers and you know these kind of cryptic spans of time that have caused, I think, innumerable scholars and historians and exegetes to basically lose their minds trying to figure, figure this stuff out. I mean, it's a big mystery with massive difference of opinion. Now, Rashi seemed to take the opinion of Sadia Gaon, right, who said that this expression of time, you know, three and a half times, corresponded to the 1,335 days mentioned at the very end of the book of Daniel. So three and a half times is the same as 1,335 days. So in Daniel 12, 12, it says, blessed is he that waits and comes to 1,335 days. And almost everyone agrees that a day in Daniel means a year, okay? So like in Daniel 9, the 70 weeks are actually 70 weeks of years, so 490 years, but we will ignore Daniel 9 today. It's gonna give us a big headache. Uh, what Rashi mentioned 
that other commentators uh, pointed out the fact that according to gematria, right, the, the numerical value of the expression, I will hide my face in Deuteronomy 31, is 1,335. So in Rashi's opinion, this 1,335 year period actually began with the, discontinu with the discontinuation of, of the daily sacrifices six years prior to the destruction of the second temple. Okay, so it follows then that at the end of this period, God will reveal his face, as it were, with the coming of the Son of Man, the Davidic Messiah, and his universal Israelite nation. So the temple was destroyed in 70 of the common era by General Titus under Vespasian, which means that the sacrifices ended six years prior, 64 CE. Now, if we move forward in time, 1,335 years from 64 CE, we come to the year 1399 of the common era. Okay, 1399. Now, Sadia and Rashi died in 942 and 1105, respectively. So they never saw the year 1399, okay? So were they right? What happened in the year 1399? The answer is, to use a Yiddish word, bupkis. Nothing. No Davidic Messiah. <laughs> I've no learned a new word today. I've learned a new word. <laughs> no, word. no defeat of the Roman Empire. Mm. So... What we have here is like uh, what Yoda said, perhaps a prophecy misread, okay? Now, today, over 600 years later, the Jews continue to wait for their Messiah. The fourth beast, i.e. the Roman Empire, that the Davidic Messiah was supposed to destroy and inherit her kingdom is no longer on the earth. Yet no Davidic Messiah arrived, the supposed son of man. I mean, even if a Jewish man were to appear in our times claiming to be the Davidic Messiah, there would be no way of verifying his Davidic lineage. The records of all tribes, possibly with the exception of the Levites, are lost to history. I mean, we can only conclude that the nation that Daniel saw in his vision was not Israel under the Messiah. Uh, besides, Israel as a nation already existed prior to even the Babylonians. The nation of the Son of Man, however, must emerge during the Roman period. It is last chronologically. Okay, and this is where the Christian apologist will make a suggestion. Okay, the Christian apologist here will say, uh, perhaps Daniel saw the Christian nation mm -hmm. under Jesus, right? So there are two major problems with this. Uh, number one, according to the synoptics, Jesus himself predicted the future coming of the Son of Man and his kingdom or nation of God on earth. And we'll get into that. Number two, the, the Pauline Christians who eventually became uh, Trinitarians, converted the Roman Empire rather than defeating it. Okay, so they, in essence, became part of the fourth beast. So it's clearly absurd, with all due respect, uh, to claim that the rigidly monotheistic prophet Daniel envisioned the Christian Jesus uh, being worshipped as God or a God, uh, and a nation under this supposed son of man that not only blasphemed God with their anti-Jewish theology and open idolatrous practices, but were also guilty of massive persecution of the Jewish people in the form of exile and massacre and blood, libel, and torture. So, so I do agree that Daniel saw the Christian nation, but it was not as the son of man and his nation, but rather as an extension uh, of the fourth beast. And by the way, this is a standard Jewish exegesis. Okay, so ra Orthodox rabbis state explicitly that the fourth beast, uh, whom they call Edom, 
Okay, they, they refer to the fourth beast as Edom. He's so terrifying because he keeps changing and morphing and adapting. So, you know, despite 1399 coming and going, uh, today Orthodox Jews believe that Edom is very much still alive. I mean, he has to say alive because their Messiah hasn't come yet. Uh, according to the rabbis, Edom became the Holy Roman Empire, then the Catholic Church, and then it morphed and divided again, growing two additional organs, the Eastern Orthodox and, 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 and Protestantism, then hundreds and hundreds of subdivisions. In short, Edom is a cipher in the Talmud for Christianity. Okay. Uh, notice, by the way, um, uh, uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad in his writings, uh, which can be very kind of esoteric at times. He, he refers to the Edomites, and this is a cipher for Christians. He, he's not being explicit here. Um, like he doesn't, doesn't refer to Muhammad upon him. He talks about the praised one and the, uh, the Edomites. He uses his language, uh, which you've just decoded for us. Yeah, yeah, it's like that in the Talmud as well. Edom, mm -hmm. the fourth beast, is Christianity. Okay, and, 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 the, and the Messiah will, uh, uh, this is according to Orthodox Jewish eschatology, and the Messiah will eradicate Christianity according to Orthodox Jewish eschatology. This is what Isaiah 27 is talking about according to the rabbis. If you look at Isaiah 27, 1, right, it says, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. So the rabbis point out, they say the sword is called fierce, great, and powerful. Three adjectives, because the sword of the Messiah will rid the world of the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Leviathan, the gliding serpent of the sea, is Christianity. This is what the rabbis teach. This is not my view. This is what the rabbis teach. I mean, you can ask Rabbi Tovia Singer, I guarantee you this is what he'll say. Okay, I guarantee it. They point out that the earliest symbol of Christianity was not the cross. It was a fish, Ichthus. the Ichthus, the gliding serpent of the sea. Hmm. Now, 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 personally, I don't believe that the fourth beast is Christianity beyond the fall of the Roman Empire. Okay, so in my view, Daniel saw a nation that would arise during the Roman period that would eventually deal a death blow to the Romans. I mean, this nation would kill the fourth beast. He saw a nation headed by a leader that would uphold and champion the true light of monotheism, of Tawhid, and take it to the world, uh, take it to the world in, in a way that Israel could only dream, I mean, quite literally. I think he saw a nation that provided shelter and protection to the Jewish people who had fled from the lands of the fourth beast. So he saw the most praised nation of Ahmad, that is Muhammad, whom I believe is the, the Bar and Nash. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute here, but let's go back to something I said earlier, because this is now important for understanding how Son of Man is being used in the New Testament. I said that when we study Jewish history, we see that pre-Christian North African and Palestinian Judaism uh, had already been significantly influenced by Hellenistic metaphysics and Greek mythology, really, and Greek mythology ever since the beginning yeah. of the Hellenistic period in the fourth century BCE. Now, the prime example of such influence, in my opinion, are the Enochic writings. Ah. And, and you'll see how I'm going to tie this back to the, the Son of Man. So the, the saga of the patriarch Enoch, described in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Enoch. And probably many viewers watching right now have never even heard of the books of Enoch. 
Uh, or, or, even, or even even before we go, I mean, who was Enoch? Now, I mean, he obviously mentioned in Genesis in the uh, Old Testament. So, just uh, very briefly, who was Enoch allegedly in the in Genesis? Who, who was this person? Yes, yeah. So Enoch was an, an antediluvian. That means pre-flood uh, patriarch. Right. I think he was the grandson of Noah. And there isn't much written about Enoch. I mean, you know, in Genesis chapter five, it simply says that he walked with God, and then he was not. For God took him, and that's right. that's all it that's all it really says. Um, yeah. uh, but but I think that uh, the the book of First Enoch, and I'll, I'll explain First Enoch. I think it's essential for understanding how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John understood the Son of Man mentioned in Daniel seven as being this sort of second divine being who shares a throne with God and judges humanity at the end of the age. And Enochic literature was quite popular among Jews in the intertestamental period, um, that's between the two testaments, as well as among early Pauline Christians, Hellenistic Christians, and the author of Jude actually quotes directly from First Enoch. Large portions of the Book of the Watchers, which is the first section of First Enoch, uh, were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate the New Testament. Uh, patristic authorities like Justin, Irenaeus, Tertullian, they cite First Enoch in their writings. Tertullian explicitly calls it scripture, mm. right? Eventually, however, First Enoch was declared heretical, and that's why it's not in the, the Jewish or Christian canons, although I think the Ethiopian church considers it uh, canonical. Now, now, there's a verse in the Quran, okay, and this is very often attacked by Christian apologists. Uh, uh, I know, I know being, you're going with this, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as being historically inaccurate, right? Yeah. The verse says, and the Jews say, Uzair is the son of God, while the Christians say, the Messiah is the son of God. And most often, Uzair is translated as Ezra, because they sound kind of the same. And so critics uh, are quick to point out that, you know, no Jew ever said that Ezra was uh, the son of God. The Quran is, uh, is simply wrong here. And then the verse continues, in this, they, meaning Jews and Christians, but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. That's chapter 9, verse 30 of the Quran. And you might say, well, wait a minute, in the Tanakh, uh, the phrase son of God is used as an, in an honorific sense. And, and I think that's true. And I think the Quran recognizes this usage in, an, in another verse, not in this verse, but in another verse, in chapter 21, verse 26, it says, and they say the most compassionate has begotten a child. Subhanahu bal ibadu mukramun. Glory be to him. Rather, they are servants raised to honor. This is an honorific title. And this is in a surah called Al-Anbiya which means the prophets. However, in the previous verse, 930, about Uzair, which is, which is in a surah that strongly denounces idolatry, uh, I would contend that the phrase son of God is meant in a pagan sense, in a Greek sense, a Hellenistic sense, not in the Jewish sense. In other words, Christian and Jewish elements have made Christ and Uzair, respectively, sons of God by ascribing divinity to them. And by doing so, they have entered into a type of polytheism. Hmm. Now, keep that in mind. I actually, I actually think that uh, I actually think that Uzair uh, mentioned in 9:30 of the Quran is the divinized Enoch, right? Uh, also known as Metatron. But that's a different topic. Right? Yeah. In fact, the famous Karite apologist, right, Abu Yusuf Yaqub al Kirkisani, right, in his famous book, it's called Kitab al Anwar wal Murakib. Uh, he says that just as Christians. Uh, starting specifically with Paul, he says, were guilty of ascribing divinity to Jesus, rabbinical Jews were, were equally guilty 
of deifying and worshiping the angel Metatron. Now, in yep. third Enoch, because there's three Enochs, oh, oh, right? Well, I've, got to, I've got to say, sorry, I've got, I've got to interject. Yeah. Tim Winter, Professor Tim Winter, Cambridge University, Muslim Reaver, uh, Abdul Hakim Murad, in right. a lecture which you can see on YouTube, which I really recommend. Uh, I've watched it a number of times. He says at Cambridge University Library, there are a mass of medieval Jewish manuscripts at Cambridge University, which uh, focus up, up, contain prayers to Metatron as a divine yeah. being. This is a very widespread practice, yeah. apparently, according to Cambridge University, uh, in medieval Judaism. And is that that the Quran is actually getting to? And he, he offers an explanation based on the linguistic elements of that. So this is a widely mm. attested practice. Even we have the evidence at Cambridge University in medieval manuscripts today. So I think it's an yeah. important point just to establish this is not some kind of theory. This is there's a right. well-evidenced religious practice in, in many mainstream medieval Judaism, actually. Yeah. And, and when you read the Enochic literature, the idolatry gets even more pronounced. Like in Third Enoch, which is written in the second century of the Common Era, uh, Metatron is explicitly called the Lesser Yahweh. Exactly. Right? Which is very interesting because, you know, Uzair in Arabic, I mean, the, the, root, the root meaning of Uzair means to help right, in Hebrew and in, in, in Arabic, and it seems to be in the diminutive in Arabic. So it seems like it means little help, little helper of God or something, <laughs> yes. God's little helper or right-hand man or something like that. Maybe this yeah. is what the Jews and the Hejaz were referring to, to Metatron. But third Enoch also calls him the prince of the universe, right, the Sar Olam. So if he's a prince, who is his father? The king is God. He's the son of God. Uh, and it says that the, the king crowns and clothes Metatron in a garment of majesty. And there are indications in the Talmud that there were Jews who took to worshiping the, the angel Metatron as a junior god or rather son of God in the yeah. Greek or Christian sense. Yeah. Okay. And of course, the famous uh, 14th century rabbi, uh, Nisim of Gorona, he approved of, of praying to angels. And as you said, this is all over medieval Jewish uh, uh, literature. Yeah. Um, so as a lesser Yahweh, Metatron had become a Logos figure akin to the Christian Jesus. But, but I digress. But now, but now the question is, who was Enoch and what does he have to do with the Son of Man? Right? So I mentioned uh, earlier that Enoch was you know, a sage, the, 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 sorry, the grandfather of Noah, uh, and he walked with God and he was not. God took him. Very intriguing, quite mysterious. Now, sometime during the, the, the pre-Christian Hellenistic period, so maybe the second or third century BCE, what's known as the intertestamental period, a Jewish writer or writers wrote First Enoch. Okay, so First Enoch is basically like episode one of the sequel to Genesis 5, right? So, you know, God took Enoch, uh, what happened to him, right? So you have First Enoch, uh, but also a sequel to another intriguing passage in Genesis 6-4, where it says that the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. That's 6-4 Genesis. And, and the offspring of these sons of God and daughters of men are called the Nephilim. Now, now first Enoch uh, says that the sons of God were fallen angels called the Watchers who procreated with human women and produced these Nephilim who were these extremely violent sort of cannibalistic giants. Uh, among the Watchers were angels like Shemi Haza, who taught mankind sorcery, and uh, Asael, who taught them warfare, and Kokabel, who taught them astrology. And then God sent down the four archangels to fight the Watchers and the Nephilim. And, and so some of them were killed, and some of them were locked in an underground uh, prison. 
And of course, if you're a student of history and literature, much of this sounds very familiar. This sounds like Greek mythology, you know, the, the, also, the, the famous Hollywood film, I think it's called Dogma or something a few years ago with some some stars, which featured all these characters by name. You, it sounds like a Hollywood movie because it was a Hollywood movie, but, <laughs> but it was yeah. originally it was written by Enoch. Well, whoever he yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like the Homeric, it sounds like the, the Theogony yeah. of Hesiod. I exactly. mean, you in the Theogony of Hesiod, you have, you have Zeus. Right, you have the sons of Zeus, the Bene Elohim, like Ares, who teaches mankind warfare, just like the Watchers do. In, in the Theogony, there's this massive battle between the Titans and the Olympians called mm -hmm. the Titanomachia, where the Titans are locked up in an underground prison called Tartarus, very similar to what we the, find. The, that very word is used in the New Testament to describe hell. It's translated in English as hell. That Hades, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and First Enoch also tells us what happened to Enoch after he ascended in a section called the Book of Parables. And what is most significant for our purposes is that first Enoch um, extensively describes the enigmatic person of the Son of Man mentioned in the Book of Daniel. So in first Enoch, the Son of Man is described as pre-existing before creation as the elected concealed angel, a divine judge who sits upon his throne of glory, a, a second divine being alongside the Ancient of Days, and the Messiah. So from these descriptions, it can be demonstrated that Jewish writers during this period had already begun the trend of identifying Daniel, son of man with the Messiah and deifying him. So the, the Danielic son of man character had evolved or rather devolved into some sort of second or lesser God. Uh, eventually, Enoch is unequivocally told, you are the son of man. So according to first Enoch, Enoch was a messianic figure who pre-existed as an angel before coming to earth as a man, was raptured into heaven by God, and finally exalted to chief angel and enthroned as a divine judge. So you have his translation into heaven, his exaltation, and eventual uh, apotheosis. Now, rabbinical Judaism eventually rejected first Enoch because of its obviously incorrect messianism, incorrect angelology. It was highly fanciful and mythological. And the rabbis also pointed out that the word Elohim in the Tanakh could also refer to powerful men like Moses is called Elohim in Exodus 7, 1. So yeah. the Bene Elohim in Genesis 6 were not the sons of God. They were simply sons of powerful men or oppressive rulers who were raping women. So they have a way of dealing with these texts. Now, when it came to the early Christians, uh, first Enoch was viewed by many as scripture. As I said, the author of the book of Jude in the New Testament quoted directly from first Enoch 1, 9. In, in Jude one fourteen, uh, This, of course, begs the question, if first Enoch is heresy, according to Christians, why did the author of Jude, whom Christians believe to have been inspired by God, uh, uh, quote a heretical book? Did God inspire Jude to quote heresy? Uh, the Christian response is something like, no, because not all of first Enoch is heresy. So the Pauline Christians were sort of able to pick and choose what they wanted to take from first Enoch. Okay, with this in mind, there is actually an alternate way of interpreting what Paul actually believed about Jesus, according to some scholars. Okay. Now, personally, I don't agree with this, but I think it's important uh, to mention in this context. So it's possible that Paul believed that Christ was a pre-existent angel before he incarnated into the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Then after his resurrection, Christ was, again, exalted by God, who made him Lord that is a divine being worthy of worship and even placed him at his right hand to be his chief mediating angel, just like Enoch became the Metatron. 
Um, interestingly, Jehovah Witnesses maintain this very Christology. I mean, they identify the angel as being Michael, whose name means who is like God. And at one point, Paul even seemed to refer uh, to Christ as an angel of God, Angelantheu, although the meaning here is a bit disputed. That's in Galatians 4.14. According to a scholar named uh, Susan Garrett, okay, this verse is a striking example of what she calls angelomorphic Christology. She states that while commentators usually assume that Paul was speaking hypothetically, she says, there is good reason to suspect that Paul is claiming that the Galatians received him as God's angel, namely Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is making the startling claim that when he first preached his gospel to the Galatians, he was united with Jesus Christ, whom Paul identifies as God's chief angel, end quote. And along the same lines, uh, Margaret Barker uh, argues that the that, that pre-Christian uh, Palestinian Judaism was not totally monotheistic. And her book is called The Great Angel, a study of Israel's second God, which is beloved to Mormons, by the way. The Mormons love this book. I really and this traces the roots of Trinitarianism to, to Jewish beliefs in, in a high God, El Elyon, and subordinate yet divine sons of God, Bene Elyon, whom she identifies as the angels. And she goes on to say that one of these son of God angels incarnated in the human flesh as Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who, who became the savior of the world. Now, did Paul actually believe that Jesus was an incarnated divine angel? Probably not. I mean, I don't agree with Barker on these points, but uh, pre-Christian Jewish slippage into a type of polytheism as a result of Hellenistic influence did occur. And angelomorphic Christology among Jews was a reality. And we see that in the Enochic tradition. So Second Temple Judaism and beyond included angel worship, first at the popular level and then at the level of the um, uh, uh, scholars. And it still does today, by the way, in the mystical tradition. That's a different subject, but this continues, yeah. the, the, these practices, even today. It continues even today. I mean, Kabbalistic Judaism, you'll find this uh, exactly. everywhere. Now, 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 here's something that's crucial. I don't think there's any doubt that the messianism of the writers of the New Testament Gospels, their beliefs about the Messiah, uh, there's almost no doubt that they were influenced in some way by Enochic tradition, okay, Enochic apocalypticism, okay? I mean, there are many scholars who wrote about the scope and extent of this uh, significance, but it's undeniably there. So Mark, for example, and, and I don't believe that Mark believed that first Enoch was canonical or absolutely correct because he couldn't. Again, in first Enoch, Enoch is explicitly identified as the son of man and Messiah. However, uh, Mark uh, continued in this uh, sort of you know, pre-Christian trajectory of Hellenistic Judaism of conflating the Messiah with the Son of Man and then exaggerating his status to the point of assigning divinity to him. The difference is that Mark believed that Jesus was that divine messianic Son of Man, not Enoch. Or to say it another way, uh, Mark had picked up the trend of divinizing Daniel's Son of Man among certain Hellenized Jews. And we see this divinization in First Enoch, where the Son of Man is described as an enthroned, pre-existent divine judge and Messiah. And it's possible that Mark himself was a Hellenized Jew, just as Paul was a Hellenized Jew. Although Robert Eisenman has a very interesting uh, uh, take on this. He says that, that Paul was a Herodian, uh, which means he was sort of half Arab, half Greek or something. And, and that Paul was the, the spouter of lies mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls, while James was the teacher of righteousness, but that's a different topic. Yeah. Perhaps you can ask Dr. Collins about his thoughts on that, but Robert Eisman, really interesting, believes that the, 
the Qumran community was the initial Christian uh, community, and they're talking about James and Paul. I've never found that very terribly persuasive, but yeah. Yeah. Now, according to Mark, um, at, at, at Jesus' trial in Mark 14, we're told that initially, okay, the chief priests and council could not find any evidence of a capital crime. But when Jesus was asked directly by the high priest if he was the Messiah, Jesus quoted from Daniel 7. He said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Okay, and we're told by Mark that at these words, okay, the high priest rented his garments and declared Jesus' speech blasphemous. I think that this tells us that according to Mark's Christology, Daniel, son of man, was viewed by Mark as a divine being. Okay, he's not the God, but he is a divine being. He is the eschatological divine judge of humanity, hence the charge of blasphemy. I think this is the overarching point that Mark is making, even though the dialogue between the high priest and Jesus in the, Mark, in the Markan narrative is very incoherent. It's actually very, a very confusing passage. So, so I don't believe that Mark means to say that Jesus committed blasphemy because he claimed to be the Messiah in a very strictly Jewish sense, that is a Messiah who is a human being in all respects. So, so, so despite the fact that the Mark in Jesus displays the lowest Christology of all the four Gospels, he is nonetheless more than a mere man in, in Mark's Gospel. This is my position. Okay? Jesus is divine in some way in all four Gospels. I'll give you some examples. For example, in Mark 2, uh, uh, when Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, a, a group of rabbis standing nearby say that this is blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. Now, critics of the Gospels will point out, well, what the rabbis must have meant, if this story is even true, I mean, if this story is even true, it's a big if, what the rabbis must have meant is that only priests can forgive sins on behalf of God. And that Jesus committed blasphemy for not claiming for, for, for claiming a priestly role, not a divine role. But I, I disagree with well, of Matthew's parallel when he uses that very passage, and he actually then has the crowds glorifying God who are given such authority to men. So it is yeah. understood in, in that delegated sense rather than divine sense. Uh, ironically, in Matthew, which has a higher Christology uh, yeah. than Mark. Yeah, that's uh, that is ironic. But, but, but I, I, think, I think what Mark intended to say was that Jesus was a divine son of God who can directly forgive sins. Why do I say this? Because right after this, the Mark in Jesus says, I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to, to forgive sins. So Mark believed that the son of man was a divine being. This was trending during his time. And Mark picked up on that trend. It was trending among Hellenistic Jews. Or later in the same chapter, the Mark in Jesus makes an amendment to the law of Moses. Now, again, a critic might say, well, as a messenger of God, Jesus has the authority to do that. The Quran even says that Jesus made certain amendments, right, to the law of Moses. He was a prophet and a messenger. But again, I don't think that's what Mark intends to say. Um, how do we know? It's because the Mark in Jesus again relates his actions to the Son of Man. He says the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You know, he doesn't say, you know, as a prophet of Israel, I can do these things by God's permission or something like that. Also, uh, uh, you know, why does David call the Messiah my, my Lord if he's David's son, etc.? Mark is making a point that Jesus is the divine son of God. And, and also, according to N. David Litwa, he has a book called Iesus Deus. I think it was his uh, dissertation. He says that the transfiguration of Jesus uh, in Mark 9 is exactly the same sequence of events in the transfigurations of Demeter and Dionysus and others. 
You know, the flesh becomes light, people get scared, and then the transfigured person is called son of God or is worshipped. Exact correspondence, okay? So going back to the trial of Jesus, for Mark, uh, when Jesus says that he's the Messiah uh, and, uh, and that the high priest will see the son of man, I think essentially what the Mark in Jesus is saying to the high priest is, I am the divine being who will judge you when I return to set up my kingdom. You see, Mark had first Enoch in mind because that's what Enoch will do, according to first Enoch, 45, 46, and 51. But, but for Mark, Enoch is not the divine judge, son of man, and Messiah. It's Jesus. Now, did the autograph author of Daniel believe that the son of man was divine, the original author of Daniel? It seems clear to me that the original author of First Enoch did. For him, the Son of Man was a divine judge who shares God's throne. In fact, the name Metatron, right, um, is a combination, probably a combination of the Greek preposition meta, meaning after or behind, and thronos, throne. So something like a throne behind the throne of God, right? Uh, but what about Daniel? Did Daniel believe the Son of Man was divine? It seems highly unlikely, uh, given the fact that Daniel was written during that a time of Jewish theological purification and revolt against polytheism, idolatry, and the general influence uh, of Hellenism. So Daniel, as a Jewish prophet, would never accept the divinity, uh, so-called divinity of the Son of Man. Now, as Muslims, we believe that Jesus, peace be upon him, was a true prophet of God, okay? The Quran tells us that Jesus would never command people to worship him, and he certainly would never make false prophecies and Jews agree with us. I mean, if Jesus was a Nevi Emet, right, a Nabi Sadiq, a true prophet, uh, he would call to the worship of the one true God, not himself, because God is not a man. Uh, and he would be truthful in speech, right? A true prophet doesn't need miracles, and he doesn't need to be Jewish or an Israelite, like Noah and Lot and Job and Abraham, the friend of God, not Jewish. And then like Nathan, Nehemiah, Obadiah, no miracles other than foretelling the future. So the Mark in Jesus... The mark in Jesus, not what we believe was the true Jesus, the mark in Jesus makes false prophecies, okay? And as Muslims, we cannot attribute these words to the prophet Jesus, peace be upon him. Mark put false words into the mouth of Jesus in order to support his Christology, really his eschatology. That's what I believe. And these words are false because they have been falsified. They are demonstrably false. And there's no good way around Mark 13, this. talking about here, Mark 13, 30. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going yeah. to, I'll get to these verses. Okay. And I think no, no amount of apologetical uh, gymnastics or textual smoothing over can really save these statements. I mean, if I told you in the year 2000 that the world would end in 2015, okay, and then 2015 comes and goes, then, then I'm a false prophet. Uh, I mean, there was an early 19th century American preacher named William Miller who predicted that the second coming of Jesus, right, the parousia, would, would occur on October 22nd, 1844, right? It was called the Great Disappointment. I mean, people were totally invested in this movement. Lives were shattered, right? I mean, Joseph Smith Jr., right, this, the, the Mormon prophet who died in 1844, coincidentally, the same year as the Great Disappointment, he, he said in 1832 that Independence, Missouri, will be the New Jerusalem, and a new temple to the Lord will be built there in this generation, meaning his own generation. Okay, He said, quoting the biblical Jesus, this generation will not pass away until a house shall be built unto the Lord. This is recorded in Doctrines and Covenants, section 84. This is a Mormon source. Okay, The early Mormon leaders immediately after Smith 
they said that this phrase, this generation, meant that people who were alive in 1832 would see this temple. So this sounds familiar. There are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming with great power. 190 years later, no temple, no new Jerusalem. So what happened? Oh, it is there, but it's spiritual. It's invisible. We can't see it. Right. <laughs> so this is the result of cognitive dissonance. You know, when one's beliefs are suddenly falsified, one way of mitigating that tension is to radically reinterpret things. So what does Deuteronomy 18.22 say? If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but his prediction did not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. Okay. That prophet has spoken without my authority. And need not be feared. Okay, the mark in Jesus says that his generation will witness the coming of the Son of Man with his great kingdom. I and mean, even C.S. Lewis said that Jesus may have made a mistake here, as you as you know. I mean, Mark was writing around 70. Okay, it was the time of the first Jewish war with the Romans. Okay, yeah. it was it was 40 years after the departure of Jesus. That's one generation. The temple had just been destroyed or was about to be destroyed. So the writing is sort of on the wall, as they say. And Mark believed that it was the end of the world. He believed that the second coming of Jesus was imminent, as did Paul. You know, it's now or never. And they were both wrong. They're falsified. Now, according to the dominant view of historians, and I agree with them uh, broadly, the historical Jesus was an apocalyptic Jewish prophet who was the herald of someone who was to come after him whom Jesus calls the Son of Man, right? So the earliest sources of the gospel, so like Q and Mark and M and L, they all portray Jesus in this way, as an apocalypticist. John, not so much. John is later. In the synoptics, Jesus predicts that the Son of Man will come and bring judgment upon the evil forces of the earth, and people need to repent in order to prepare for this. This message is consistently found in Mark, Q, and M and L. Personally, I'm, I'm convinced that this is the right answer historically, right? There, I mean, there were historians who said that Jesus was a Pharisee, he was an Essene, he was a proto-zealot, and he was, a, he was an Essene and a proto-zealot, a Sadducee, et cetera, et cetera. What I find most compelling historically is this now dominant position that Jesus was an apocalyptic Jewish prophet who was the herald of someone who was to come after him, whom Jesus called the Son of Man. I think that's right. A Christian will say, but Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And yes, he does. And this is what the writers of the Gospels put into the mouth of Jesus. I mean, I believe they wanted Jesus to be the Son of Man. The, the Gospel writers even have Jesus say that uh, the Scriptures predicted that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. And there's nothing in Daniel 7 or the entire Tanakh, i.e. the Scriptures for that matter, that mentioned that the Son of Man will be killed unless you're making some very, very dubious intertextual assumptions, I mean, the real Jesus would not make such an error, but the Pauline-influenced gospel writers certainly would, and they did. Uh, and uh, you see, it was Paul who first wrote that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? According to Paul, Paul did not inherit this teaching from human witnesses, right? He said that this information was directly revealed to him by someone he believed was the resurrected Christ. I mean, Paul calls it my gospel, and Paul's gospel significantly influenced the gospel writers 
And of course, Paul's enemies are clearly Jamesonian and Nazarenes. I mean, we talked about that tension in the previous uh, podcast. Uh, however, the, the gospel writers simply could not ignore the multiple early and independent traditions in which Jesus spoke of the Son of Man as a future leader who will bring judgment upon the earth, someone clearly other than himself. And these statements pass the criterion of dissimilarity. In other words, it seems unlikely that the gospel writers and early Pauline Christians would have made them up. Therefore, historians give them a bit more weight. But look what Mark did in his gospel. So Mark essentially made Jesus into a false prophet, okay? And that's what, what's known as a nevi shekir, right? Uh, so remember something important. Most historians basically agree the words of the Quran, okay? The words of the Quran uh, were written down, uh, uh, or sorry, the words of the Quran were first uttered by the historical Muhammad, peace be upon him, whether you believe he was a prophet or not, okay? He is the earthly source of the Quran. This is the dominant position. The Quran was written down and constantly recited and constantly memorized during the Prophet's life. And you can't pray without the Quran. And Muslims in Medina were praying five times a day, um, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, um, around 650, uh, so like less than 20 years after the Prophet's death, the, the Codex Committee of Uthman which consisted um, entirely of eyewitnesses to the Prophet, standardized the text based upon the dominant reading of the Prophet himself. I mean, Dr. Sean Anthony says that the earliest extant manuscripts of the Quran are dated to before 656 of the Common Era. Of course, the Birmingham manuscript can be dated to the Meccan period of the Prophet's life. Jesus, however, peace be upon him, saw none of the four Gospels that claimed to preserve his words. There's a big, big difference. So whether you believe the Gospels were inspired scripture or not, Jesus never saw any of them. This is a fact. In other words, uh, the Prophet Muhammad knew what Al-Fatiha was. He knew what Al-Baqarah Al was. He knew what Ayatul Kursi was. He knew what Surah Yasin was. But if you took a time machine back to Nazareth in, in 30 of the Common Era and asked Jesus to recite Matthew chapter 23, he would have no idea what you were talking about. So when it comes to words attributed to Jesus after his departure, we must be discerning and critical. Because some of the actual words are there. And some are clearly not. We have to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so the criteria of historiography uh, become useful. You know, the gospel writers, they, they wrote these words in faraway lands, uh, lands far away from the events that they were describing and wrote them in the language that was most likely foreign to Jesus and his uh, disciples. Uh, I mean, I said earlier that both the biblical Jesus and biblical Paul made false prophecies. This is true, but the difference between these two men Jesus and Paul, is that we have the actual words of Paul that he wrote or dictated during his life. Okay, the Gospels, on the other hand, were written after Jesus's departure. So this is really important. In other words, Paul was wrong according to Paul, but Jesus was wrong according to Mark and Matthew. That's a big difference, okay? I mean, Paul believed in an imminent second coming, not because he got that from Jesus. It's easy to make that error, because chronologically, Jesus came before Paul. But in reality, the Markin Jesus got this from Paul because the Markin Jesus was after Paul. Now, let's go back to Jesus' uh, trial in Mark. So, so at his trial, okay, the Markin Jesus misunderstood the context of Daniel 7 and then pronounced a false prophecy. Uh, and when I say the Markin Jesus, again, I mean Mark, not the true Jesus. You know, the Markin Jesus said to the high priest, 
and you shall see, right? Obseste, that's the Greek verb, second person plural. You all shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds. Did this happen? Did Caiaphas and the council see the second coming of Jesus on the clouds? And were they judged by Jesus in the new kingdom? The answer is no. Daniel saw the Son of Man coming in the clouds, meaning he saw the coming of an exalted nation. The clouds are symbolical. They, they represent praise and God's protection. Why would Caiaphas see the clouds? That's what Daniel saw in his vision. I mean, imagine Caiaphas on his deathbed. I don't know when Caiaphas died, but imagine that he lived long enough to see the destruction of the temple. Now imagine that Caiaphas you know, somehow got a copy of the Gospel of Mark in his hands, and he reads it. And he reads that Jesus said to him that he would see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. He would be totally confused. Now, now Luke, writing 20 years after Mark, edited Mark in a very telling way, right? So Luke actually wrote in his prologue, as you know, that his gospel is better than the other gospels, more accurate. And Luke, the Luke in Jesus responds to the council like this. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated right? Kathemenos, passive verb, will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. At first glance, this sounds like what the Mark and Jesus said, but line up the Greek of both texts, and you'll notice that they're completely different for a very specific purpose. No more, and you, sh and you all shall see. No more coming in the clouds of heaven. Luke changes Mark and basically tells us that this, you know, sitting of the Son of Man at God's right hand is something unseen and therefore no longer falsifiable. All right. It's going to happen in the spiritual realm. Again, mm -hmm. cognitive dissonance. It's the spiritual kingdom of God, as if Daniel was talking about some spiritual or invisible nation. Right. Uh, Luke, I just want to say, uh, for any viewers who are wondering what uh, Dr. Ali Atai is saying here, are these speculations of an individual? No, that this is, our, for my own reading, this is very standard analysis of the way uh, failed eschatology is then made spiritualized, it's made mm. present, and it's the future uh, imminence goes. You see exactly as you say in Luke, you see it in John, of course, even more so. So this is very standard stuff that uh, Dr. Ali Atai is giving us here. It's not, uh, it's not just your view, but it, it, it's something that uh, many Christian scholars uh, also have observed in their honesty and in their integrity in wanting to right. give us uh, an objective analysis of what's going on in the text. So um, right. I want to just to stress that if people are wondering, is this just some idiosyncratic theory? It's not. Uh, yeah. it's, it's main, very mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Luke, you know, Luke does does further damage control in, in 17, 20, and 21. So Luke says that one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You know, you won't be able to say here it is or it's over there for the kingdom of God is already among you, right? Or in another translation, the better translation, because yeah. it says, hey, basileia that the kingdom of God is within you, right? It's invisible. Right now, now, interestingly, there is a Christian eschatology called preterism. No. OK. And I discovered this uh, uh, quite recently. So preterism uh, teaches that, yes. that Jesus, as a supposed son of man, did come during that generation because this is the plain and obvious reading of the text. They admit this, but he came in the form of judgment upon the Jews by destroying the temple in 70 CE. 
So this is also called the 70 AD doctrine, that all prophecy of the Bible was fulfilled by 70 CE, the second coming, the judgment, the kingdom of God on earth, all by 70, okay? And so even the book of Revelation is not talking about the future, but events prior to 70 CE. Everything ends at 70 CE. So preterism is a way of saving the biblical Jesus from making false prophecies. And much- that's, that's the point of this whole doctrine is precisely to save Jesus from error. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah. That's it's, it. it's a much more honest and accurate way of understanding the plain text of the Gospels. But their conclusions, I think, are totally out of whack. So according to them, the second coming of Jesus and the kingdom of God brought by Jesus, the supposed son of man, is essentially the destruction of Jerusalem, the humiliation of the Jewish people and the worship of Jesus as a God, which is total idolatry. This is the great thing that Daniel saw. This is just impossible. And you know what's ironic, and and I I really want the viewers to think about this, and if you're Christian, you're probably not going to like this, but I think I need you to hear it. And I say this with all due respect. Please don't be offended. Islam is the vindicator of Jesus, okay? And I mentioned this before, but here's a slightly different angle to it. In the New Testament, Jesus makes false prophecies, and he commits blasphemy. Islam defends Jesus against these charges. Islam, Islam and only Islam, Jesus as a true prophet knew the correct context of Daniel 7. He knew that the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds in the vision of Daniel meant a great nation of holy people led by a great leader would arise during the Roman period who would bring deen, that's the word used by Daniel, judgment or the true religion upon the earth. As Isaiah said, mishpat be'aretz, deen al-haq fil-ard. This nation is something real. It's something tangible. It's discernible. It's not invisible. It's not, you know, phantasmic. And Jesus, the real Jesus, was talking about the Son of Man in Daniel, the one whose nation would destroy the fourth beast, not someone who would join the fourth beast and and not be mythical and highly contrived and blasphemous divine Son of Man of first Enoch that Mark appropriated. I don't believe that Jesus said that his generation would live to see the Son of Man. This is Mark ad-libbing to something that Jesus did say because Mark interpreted his times to be the end of time. This is Mark's error that even Luke tried to correct or smooth over a little bit, as we saw. And by the time you get to John in 90 to 100 CE, you have what's known as realized eschatology, which is a spin on the eschatology of Paul, Mark, and Matthew, because by 90 CE, it was painfully obvious that the plain meanings of Paul, Mark, and Matthew had been falsified. The, the Johannine Jesus tells Pilate, the Roman governor, you don't have to worry about me. My kingdom is not of this world, right? So atheist historians, atheist historians, they often ridicule the biblical Jesus for making false prophecies. I mean, they make a mockery of him. They compare him to William Miller and, and C.T. Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They compare him to Harold Camping and his so-called rapture day. They call, they call it the failed apocalypse of Jesus. I mean, they're laughing at the biblical Jesus. And Jews reject the biblical Jesus because uh, not only did he make false prophecies, uh, but he also made divine claims, especially in John. And so according to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, Jews are justified in rejecting him, right? It is the message of Muhammad wasallam that exonerates Jesus, peace be upon him, of these disturbing charges. According to the Quran, Jesus never claimed divinity, and he predicted the coming of Ahmad, the prophet Muhammad, who came 600 years later, 
well beyond the generation of Jesus. In other words, the Quran is saying that Jesus did not expect that things would come to an end so quickly. So while I believe that Jesus was still an apocalypticist, and I'll explain that, there was a future aspect to his teaching. But let me restate things again for the sake of clarity. So most modern scholars, okay, using the criteria of modern historiography, conclude that historically speaking, Jesus of Nazareth was most likely some sort of apocalyptic Jewish prophet, a human being in all respects, who taught a more liberal interpretation of the law, not the end of the law, who cleansed the temple and thought of himself as being the herald of the powerful son of man and the, and the coming kingdom of God on earth. Historians will also say that Jesus predicted, predicted that the coming kingdom would not manifest during his own generation and that he probably thought that he would be declared king of that kingdom at some point. So the son of man would bring the nation or kingdom and that Jesus at some point would be king or ruler over that nation. So we should take note that this is not the true Jesus. This is only the dominant historical construction. Okay. Yet this modern historical construction, uh, although we as Muslims don't totally agree with it, it's much closer to the Jesus of Islam than the Jesus of Christian confession. And here's an important point. Where our Christology does clash with the general consensus of historians, like the event of the crucifixion, we are prepared to present textual evidence and use logic and reason to robustly demonstrate the claims of the Quran. For instance, I would argue that the subtext behind Paul's letters to the Galatians and Corinthians could plausibly reveal that the Jamesonian Nazarenes in Jerusalem, that is to say the actual disciples of Jesus and his family members denied that Jesus was crucified. I would argue that even the gospels are making statements that are meant to counter other Christian claims regarding the alleged uh, crucifixion. I mean, I can make that argument. I won't do it here. This is not the occasion. Uh, so I, I want to say a few more things about the historical Jesus because this is so important. Um, and, and I'm obviously not saying that the Jesus of Albert Schweitzer or Bart Ehrman or Dale Martin or Dale Allison is the true Jesus. They don't even say that, right? The secular historian admits that yeah. he does not have access to the true Jesus exactly. because Jesus yeah. lived in the past. We have yeah. no access to the past. The, the that's, best that's, a really, that's, a really that's a really important point, though, by the way. Something that Dale Martin yeah. brilliantly makes, uh, Bart yeah, Ehrman also does. makes the same point. Historians don't have access to the past. It's gone. What, they, what they're doing is reconstructing uh, yeah. uh, uh, their understanding based on what evidence there is, yeah. and it's they say it's only probable at most it's only probable yeah, they don't exactly. have access to the real jesus is beyond them um and the yeah. chronicles claims to disclose the real jesus yeah i mean that's yeah that's the best a historian can do is construct a jesus based on like you said probability right and this is what this is what airman said when you interviewed him as well you know so how does how does this work so jesus was probably not born of a virgin therefore historically he was not born of a virgin. Jesus probably did not perform miracles. Therefore, historically, he did not perform miracles. So secular histo history is a game of probability. So secular historians certainly don't affirm miracles because miracles are, by definition, the least probable occurrences. That doesn't mean that miracles are impossible. So we as Muslims do believe in miracles but we be because we believe in God, who is all-powerful, mm -hmm. and God can cause what theologians call khawarik uh, al-adat, which are... Uh, breaches or really rare occurrences of customary physics. So yes, miracles are the least probable events, 
So we shouldn't expect secular historians to affirm miracles, right? I mean, they're looking at the world through a, a monocle. We're using bifocals, right? It's like secular scientists are the same way. Here's what the universe is and how it is, uh, how it happened, but, but why? The latter is only answered by wahi, by revelation. Uh, historians also say that Jesus was probably crucified. I mean, many Jews were. You know, what's the difference? Paul and the four gospel writers say he was. Therefore, historically, he was crucified. And here, the Christian apologist gets really happy, right? And they say, see, you Muslims, it's a historical fact that Jesus was crucified, and even your beloved and honorary sheikh, Bart Ehrman, says so, right? <laughs> well, what, the, what that means is that it is simply more probable that he was crucified based upon the existing evidence. I mean, Ehrman will also say that it is not a historical fact that Jesus was resurrected, or that, according to Matthew, the saints were resurrected on Easter Sunday and started walking around Jerusalem and appeared to many. I mean, yeah. many Christian apologists argue that these are historical facts and have debated uh, think, the likes but, but of Aaron. My view would be that the Quran's claim about the, about the crucifixion is impossible to falsify. The Quran's claim is that it appeared to them that he had, you know, it's not possible to falsify it. Uh, and yeah. it's not, so it, it's, it remains logically impregnable. Uh, whether or not it happened, of course, is a matter of faith, but uh, it, uh, right. it, it's not something that can be disproved, the Quran's own statement, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I would go on to say that the, the resurrection is not historical. You know, I mean, if you want to believe that, that's fine. It's your faith conviction. And it's not like Christians believe this without evidence. They have some historical arguments that they will trot out, but it can't be a historical fact because the preponderance of evidence will never, will never swing in the direction of a miracle. And maybe it happened, but it's not scientific history. It's sacred history. And, you know, the, the historicity of the crucifixion is, is actually a separate topic that I would love to address uh, on mm. a future podcast. Uh, but for now, I'll just say this. I'll, I'll just say this, and then I'll move on. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, there, are, there are several bona fide historians who, who believe that Jesus never even existed, let alone crucified. I mean, these are called mythicists. They, they don't even affirm some minimalist historical kernel from which the mythical Jesus emerged. For them, Jesus is myth from A to Z, like Romulus or Zeus. And there are now at least two peer-reviewed books that argue that Jesus was a myth who was euhemerized. So, and, and they point out that the first undisputed non-Christian mention of Jesus occurs 81 years after the end of Jesus's life, that's Pliny the Younger. I mean, Antiquities 18 of Josephus. Josephus mentions yeah, Jesus. That, no, it's Pliny the Younger. So Josephus, Antiquities 18 is probably a total fabrication. Um, oh, so the, the first, un, the first undisputed. I, I, interpolated. I, I thought that there was a corner, a, a, an original stuff where he mentions him in passing, and that was interpolated later, mentioning the Messiah and everything else. But I, I don't get into yeah, that now. I mean, some yeah. some scholars believe about you know some of it is interpolated. Some say the whole thing's a fabrication. But the first totally undisputed non non Christian mention is eighty one oh, years later. And you compare this with the first non Muslim mention of the name Muhammad, right? The Chronicles of of of, of Thomas the Presbyter that was in six forty. That's eight years after the Prophet's death. Although there's something called the uh, uh, Doctrina Jacobi, which is a document written by a Christian in North Africa. And he said that, you know, this army is coming in. They have an Arab prophet. That was in 634. So that's two years after the prophet, although it doesn't name him. It doesn't say Muhammad. It says the prophet of the, of the Saracens. Now, 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 most historians disagree with myth mythicism, and yeah. I disagree with it. Yeah. But, but let's not pretend that questioning the historicity of Jesus's crucifixion is some crazy, wild-eyed, revisionist nonsense. I mean, there were Christian groups that denied the crucifixion in the first in the first century of Christianity. Yep. So the Facilities. question is, 
The, exactly. The, the question is, why didn't they just read the New Testament? I mean, four out of four <laughs> Gospels say that he was crucified. So does Paul. Of course, the answer is there was no New Testament. Uh, so there's a good historical argument to be made for denying the crucifixion. And I will make that argument. It's just that the preponderance of evidence doesn't seem to favor it, at least right now. But who knows? You know, archaeology has been sort of the, the, the bugbear of Trinitarian Christianity. And, you know, let's wait and see what they find out. But I will address the, the issue in the future, inshallah. I think people will be very surprised. Uh, so crucifixion aside, the dominant historical perspective regarding Jesus is closer to the Islamic position than to the Christian position. And this is very obvious. Again, yeah. in a nutshell, Jesus was a human being, not divine, never claimed to be divine, an apocalyptic prophet who predicted that the Son of Man would come and establish his nation on earth and that the Son of Man would come during his own generation. Now, as a Muslim, I agree with everything there except the last statement. But I can tell you why I disagree. Historically, I believe Mark was influenced by Paul and was convinced that, that the Jewish war with the Romans was basically the end. You know, Christians disagree with almost everything I just said, uh, all of those points. Uh, now, as believers in God and, and prophecy and miracles and the hereafter, both Muslims and Christians will also affirm sacred history and the theological criteria, okay, that goes with that. So, okay, so there's secular history um, and its criteria, and then there's sacred history and its criteria. So what are those? So I mentioned them earlier. Basically, that a potential prophet must affirm the fundamental theology of the Abrahamic prophets and is true in speech. He doesn't need miracles, nor does he need to be a certain race or tribe. Okay, Christians believe that the text of the Gospels, the New Testament, is authentic and accurate. Okay, therefore, the biblical Jesus fails here on both accounts. So there is no reason at all to believe in the words of the biblical Jesus. If you believe the text is sound, if you believe the text is sound, then the biblical Jesus makes false prophecies and committed blasphemy. Now, with respect to the temple cleansing, this was also something that, that early Pauline Christians would not have wanted to say about Jesus. I mean, for them, you know, Jesus was a meek and gentle lamb led to the slaughter, not some violent cleanser of the temple who was turning over tables and chairs, whipping people with a cord. No, this was during Passover week, so thousands of people either saw or heard about him doing this. It's in all four Gospels. It's mentioned twice in John's Gospel. So, so Jesus probably did cleanse the temple. However, I believe that Jesus' action was meant to be a prophecy to all Israel that due to their widespread rejection of their prophet Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, as well as their murder of James, perhaps, Jesus' brother in 62 of the common era, and just their general disunity and disbelief, God would soon punish them by allowing the Romans to destroy their temple. The destruction of the temple was inevitable. So that's the bad news. However, the good news, and that's what gospel means, the good news, eventually the Bar Enash, the Son of Man, will come with a law like Moses. He's a prophet like Moses. And with spiritual and military power and true monotheism will spread from the east to the west uh, at a pace that continues to baffle historians even today. Right? For as lightning flashes in the east and shines into the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes, says the Mathean Jesus. The message of the Son of Man uh, will validate the major theological and legal principles of the Jewish people. It'll also correct and refine aspects as well. It will offer protection to the Jewish people 
as, as people of the book, you know, Jews who are living under the oppressive dominion of the fourth beast. It will exonerate the Jews of the Christian charge of Christicide, let alone deicide, right, killing God. So, so in reality, a greater good will come about for the Jewish people. You know, the, the Bar and Nash will complete the mission of Israel and take the light of El Echad, of Tohid to the nations. In the meantime, the Jews need to repent and prepare for the Son of Man. And when he comes, they must follow him. Okay, when he comes with spirit and power and true oneness of God, the Jews must follow him irrespective of his race. He is the anti-type of Cyrus who is chosen by God according to God's will. Okay, so I believe that Jesus' action of, of, of cleansing the temple was a foreshadowing of what would occur in 70 CE. You know, it's kind of like Jeremiah walking around Jerusalem wearing an ox yoke to foreshadow captivity in Babylon. And I think that many Jews in Jerusalem probably misunderstood or misinterpreted Jesus' action as Jesus somehow claiming to be the king of Israel, a king messiah, or made this claim for him because they hated him for expelling them. I mean, Mark says in 11.18 that it was because of this event that the, that the scribes and Pharisees, that the scribes and chief priests first sought to kill him. I mean, John disagrees with that. Uh, and I think this misattribution that Jesus was claiming to be the king of the Jews eventually reached the ears of the Roman authorities, which may have caused them to get involved. How involved, it's impossible to know for sure. But I think that, uh, I believe that God then intervened and raptured Jesus in some way after some alleged crucifixion event, because Jesus has a role to play in the true end times, but we can get into that uh, later. But so, so in my view, Jesus was apocalyptic. Okay, he was an apocalyptic prophet. He was the ultimate, that is to say, the final Israelite prophet. But I don't believe that he taught that the kingdom of God nor the Son of Man would come within his generation. I believe that he predicted the the destruction of the temple within his generation, and I believe that the gospel writers incorrectly assumed that the destruction of the temple somehow necessitated the immediate coming of the Son of Man and his nation, and that the Son of Man was Jesus in his second coming. This was Paul's influence. Okay, In the Gospels, Jesus says that the Son of Man will usher in the kingdom, but it also seems that Jesus expected himself to rule that kingdom. How can this be? Well, in Islamic eschatology, it works perfectly fine. When Jesus returns towards the end of time, he will be the leader of the Muslim Ummah, the Ummah of Muhammad, the Son of Man. The nation established by the Son of Man will be led by Jesus. Now, let's, I'm actually coming down towards the, the end here. Um, uh, let's uh, return to Daniel 7, 13, and 14 uh, and, um, and try to identify the Son of Man here. So, again, Daniel 7, 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like a Son of Man came in the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Okay, now while describing the night journey and ascension of the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran says, Basically, that the Prophet was brought near to God. The Prophet then experienced the beatific vision of God, much like uh, Daniel did. And then Daniel says, And he was given authority and honor and rulership. So that all people, all nations and languages should obey him. His authority is an everlasting authority, which shall not come to an end. Does the Quran describe the Prophet Muhammad along these lines? And the answer is yes. Right. So 7.158 of the Quran. Say, O humanity, I am the messenger of God sent to you all. 61.9 of the Quran. Uh, he is the one who sent his messenger with true guidance. 
and the religion of truth, making it prevail over all others, even to the dismay of the polytheists. 21107, we did not send you except as a mercy unto all the worlds. Um, chapter 4, verse 65, they have no real faith until they make you a judge in all of their affairs. 94.4, we exalted and raised your remembrance. 33.63, God and his angels send blessings of peace upon the prophet. Now look at Mark 8.38, which historians single out specifically as indicating that Jesus and the Son of Man are clearly two different people. So in, in Mark 8.38, the Mark in Jesus says, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, right? Tus emus logus, my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall also the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes <laughs> in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Father here in the context of Judaism means Lord, right? Isaiah says, Atta Adonai Avino, right? You are the Lord, our Father, our Father who art in heaven, etc. Is, is Mark 8.38 exactly what Jesus said? It's highly unlikely. Okay, it's in the wrong language. Mark was not a disciple, and Jesus wasn't around to proofread Mark chapter 8. But it's probably something close to what he said. The Son of Man will restore the words, that is the true teachings of Jesus. The Son of Man will come in his Lord's glory, or doxa, or praise with angels, God and his angels, Bless and praise the Son of Man. This is what the Quran says. He is the most praised Son of Man, the most praised human being. He's Muhammad. He's Ahmad. I mean, that's literally what his name means, the most praised. Humanity praises him. The angels praise him. God praises him, right? The Quran further says, the famous verse 61.6, and remember, this 61.6, and remember when Jesus, the son of Mary, said, O Israelites, I am the messenger of God sent to you, confirming the teachings of the Israelite prophets and giving you good news, that's the gospel, and to evangelize you of a messenger to come after me, whose name is most praised. Hey, this verse is very close to the dominant position of historians. Jesus was a son of Mary, a human being, not divine, who preached to the Israelites, he confirmed the major principles of Jewish law and theology, and he predicted a messenger of God who would come after him, whose name will be most praised. This is the Son of Man with his nation. In my opinion, this is not referring to the paraclete of John's gospel. Many modern Muslims, they say that, oh, here, Ahmad means paraclete. Uh, the paraclete in John uh, uh, is John's way, I think, of mitigating a sort of no-show second coming of Jesus in the flesh in his generation. Uh, as I said, it's a so-called uh, so uh, realized uh, eschatology. So the Gospel of John turns the future Son of Man into the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And so he did come. Like in John 20, 22, it says Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So I think it's a total fabrication. I mean, if Jesus spoke of a paraclete, then the synoptics should have mentioned it. You know, the paraclete passages are like the I am statements for me. If Jesus truly said... I and the Father are one, and before Abraham was, I am. It is utterly inconceivable that the synoptics did not record any of these. So no, in, in 61.6 of the Quran, the human messenger that Jesus predicted was the one whose name was exalted by God and his angels. This is Muhammad, the son of man, the quintessential Ibn Adam, al-Insan al-Kamil. Now the Quran further says, it says, this is... Uh, 
in chapter 48, I believe verse 29, it says, Muhammad Rasulullah waladina ma'ahu ashidda'u ala kuffar ruhama'u baynahum tarahum ruka'an sujjadan yabtaguna يَبْتَغُونَ فَضْلًا مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرِضْوَانًا سِيمَاهُمْ فِي وُجُوهِهِمْ مِنْ أَثْرِ السُّجُودِ ذَلِكَ مَثَلُهُمْ فِي التَّوْرَةِ says Muhammad is a messenger of God and those who are with him are fierce against unbelievers and compassionate among each other. I think it's 48-29. You will see them bowing and prostrating, seeking grace from God and His pleasure. Their faces contain the traces of their prostrations. That is their similitude in the Torah. Okay, now Torah here right, does not simply mean Pentateuch or Chumash, right? Uh, it means the entire instruction or teachings given to the children of Israel. In fact, the rabbis refer to the entire Tanakh and Talmud as HaTorah min HaShemayim, the teaching from the heavens. That's the Tanakh and the Talmud together. So that's the broadest sense of the word Torah. So according to this Quranic verse, there is a similitude in the Jewish scriptures that describes the Prophet Muhammad and his nation as being devout, saintly, and obedient to God. What is this similitude? The Son of Man coming in the clouds. The saintly nation that is both fierce and compassionate that Daniel saw was symbolized as a great man coming in the clouds. The Quran continues, same verse, وَمَثَلَهُمْ فِي الْإِنْجِيلِ كَالزَّرْعٍ أَخْرَجَ شَطْأَهُ and their similitude in the gospel is like a seed which sends forth its shoot and strengthens it and rises firm upon its stalk, delighting the sowers, and he may enrage the disbelievers. Jesus says in Mark 4, and there are parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God, the Malkutha da'Allaha in Aramaic. What parable should I use to illustrate it? Okay, so he's talking about the kingdom of God on earth that the Son of Man will bring. He says, it is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than the herbs and shoots out large branches so the birds of the air may, may nest under its shade. Did Jesus say these words exactly? Probably not, but something very close to it. The Mathean Jesus gives us the parable of the tares. This is from M, special Mathean material. Matthew 13, 24. The kingdom of heaven, again, this really means a godly kingdom on earth in this world. This is, a, this is the meaning of kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed a good seed, is like a man, right? Karbar enesh, is like a man. That's the son of man. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed a good seed in his field. A few verses later, the Mathean Jesus says, The field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the sower of the good seed is the son of man. Again, the similitude of Muhammad and his companions in the gospel is like a seed, according to the Quran. Okay, now, the last thing that we have to do is identify the little horn and the 1,335-year riddle um, uh, how we can sort of deal with that in a bit, uh, in, in a more coherent sort of way. And again, my conclusions do not work perfectly, but, but nothing works perfectly when, when you're looking at Daniel, and, and Jews and Christians have done no better with these highly enigmatic uh, texts. I mean, getting the math to work somehow with all of the details has been extremely difficult, especially with Daniel 9 that we'll look at in the future, inshallah. Now, in my view, Rashi's identification of the Son of Man as being the Davidic Messiah is incorrect. I mentioned this earlier. 
Just as Jews would point out to Christians concerning Isaiah 53, the word Messiah does not appear anywhere in the text of Daniel 7. Okay. However, I agree with Rashi's identifications of the four beasts. However, again, his identification of Titus as being the little horn is quite tenuous for several reasons. Firstly, Titus was uh, the 10th Roman emperor, not Vespasian, meaning that the little horn should have followed Titus. Uh, you might say, well, close enough. Uh, well, okay. Well, secondly, uh, while Titus did in fact uh, lead the attack on the second temple and parade, you know, the, the, the temple's menorah and the law of the Jews through the streets of Rome upon his return, according to Josephus, there's no clear indication that he spoke the highly emphasized great things that Daniel really emphasized. Now, with respect to Titus's changing of the sacred times and laws, Rashi said that Titus only intended to do this. Also, it's not clear at all how Jewish exegetes explain how the Jews, uh, after living under the control of the little horn for three and a half times, defeated the little horn and took control of his dominion. This was supposed to happen uh, under the uh, Davidic Messiah, no less. If this is yet to happen, then the Jewish exegesis becomes untenable. As already stated, Rome is gone and David's line is lost. My contention is that there are two candidates that fit the description of the little horn better than Titus. Our first candidate is none other than Constantine. So Constantine's conversion was the beginning of the Christianization of the Roman Empire, okay? He followed 10 Roman kings or emperors. How? Well, the number 10 in biblical numerology symbolizes strength, power, and perfection. Maybe this is how Daniel's using it. Uh, that is to say, the little horn will appear well into the Roman period when Rome is firmly established as a world superpower for generations. I mean, it's speculative, but, but possible. But what does it mean that, that Constantine's rise will uproot three other horns? or three other kings. So in 293 of the Common Era, the Emperor Diocletian instituted the Tetrarchy, right? The rule of four. So the empire was divided into four districts, right? And ruled by two Augusti and two Caesars. In 312 of the Common Era, these were Maximinus Daza, Licinius, Maxentius, and Constantine, right? By 324, after a series of civil wars, including you know, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, the Battle of Mardia, the Battle of uh, Chrysopolis, uh, Constantine emerged as the sole ruler of Rome. He uprooted three kings. He uprooted, th he uprooted three horns. And Constantine built a new Rome in Byzantium. Now, we should notice that in addition to opposing the people of God, the main crime of the little horn in Daniel 7 was speaking great things. That is like so highly influential or highly consequential words of blasphemy. Okay. There isn't even a hint in Daniel 7 that the little horn would destroy the temple. Okay. That you can say something like that about Daniel 9, but not 7. But what were these highly influential words of blasphemy? I think the answer is the Nicene Creed. Okay. It was, it was indeed Constantine who presided over the infamous Council of Nicaea in 325, where Jesus the Nazarene and monotheistic prophet Messiah was officially declared to be God, right? The creed states that Christ was begotten from the Father uniquely. This is from the essence of the Father, God from God, 
light from light, true light from true, uh, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial with the Father, through whom all things in heaven and earth became, the one who for the sake of us human beings and for the sake of our salvation came down and became flesh and dwelled in man, suffered, rose on the third day, ascended into heaven, and will come to judge the living and the dead. I mean, absolute kufur from start to finish. I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. The creed further explicitly anathematized the Arians uh, who, who seem to have maintained that although Christ was the best of creation, he was nonetheless creation. Uh, I think it was one of the Cappadocian fathers, may, maybe Gregory of Nyssa, who famously uh, described Arius's theology as Jewish, as if that's a bad thing. I mean, the, the creed further stated, and those who say there was once when he was not and before being begotten, he was not, and out of non-being, he became, or, or he is from another essence or substance, or the Son of God is created, changeable, alterable. These, the universal and apostolic church, deems accursed. So these grievous... He's anathema, anathematized. Anathematized, exactly. That's the Greek, yeah. So these are grievous and highly influential words of Constantine's council. And, and they're the greatest blight upon monotheism in the history of the world, probably. And what makes them especially odious is the fact that they attribute deity to the Jewish Messiah, whose teachings in reality epitomized the radical oneness and uniqueness of God, and who himself was a humble servant of his Lord. In the words of the Quran, the Messiah would never disdain to be a servant of God. Okay, Constantine's creed demolished the Shema of the Torah, which is the most explicit and celebrated expression of true monotheism in the entire Tanakh. Of course, by adopting pagan holidays, such as the birthday of the Sol Invictus on December 25th into the empire, Constantine changed the sacred times and laws, just as Daniel predicted. Constantine enacted legislation recommended by the church, okay? In, in both Palestine, as well as the lands of the Roman Empire, Constantine's great words persecuted both Jewish and Christian monotheists, the saints of the Most High, the Qadishe Elionin, for nearly 309 years. So Nicaea was in 325, okay? In 326, Constantine entered Jerusalem and persecuted the monotheist, the Mawahidun, in the holy city. So if we take the Aramaic word edan, meaning time, to be 100 years, okay? Uh, th this could mean that the, the, the armies of the Son of Man would arrive sometime during the last half a time period, sometime within the final 50 years of time, times, and half a time. And they did in 634 CE, the nation of the Son of Man, Muhammad, arrived armed with both the weapons of war and the penetrating truths of the Word of God, Abrahamic monotheism, and the holy city of Jerusalem was liberated by the armies of the Son of Man from the tyranny of the fourth beast. Now, the two shortcomings of this are, number one, the math isn't perfect, and number two, the Roman Empire did not die definitively in 634 of the Common Era, despite losing Jerusalem. However, you could argue like by the 670s, right, the Muslim armies had conquered many of the lands previously controlled by the, by the Byzantines. And so the oneness of God was becoming a global phenomenon. I mean, the turning point of power, one could argue, was the 670s. And that is exactly three and a half centuries after Constantine rose to power. Time, times, and half a time. Okay, and this leads, leads me to my second candidate for the office of the Danielic Little Horn, uh, and I'll end with this, and this is, uh, and that's Hadrian, 
Okay, so Hadrian was the 14th emperor. So the 10th was, was Titus. And then you have three, Domitian, Nerva, and Trajan, then Hadrian. So the imagery of the little horn supplanting the three could mean something like he was, I don't know, worse than the previous three. I don't know exactly. Now, now from a Jewish perspective, remember the Israelites were the Muslim ummah during that time, right? And Jerusalem was the monotheistic capital of the world. From a Jewish perspective, Hadrian basically represents uh, uh, everything that Israel condemns, everything that divine revelation condemns. So first of all, Hadrian was an open, you know, sexual deviant. He had a 16-year-old boyfriend named uh, uh, Antinous who, who died suddenly, and Hadrian named a city after him, Antonopolis, and declared him to be worshipped as God, as a god. I mean, there were temples all over the empire. And statues to him all around the empire. Everywhere. Yeah. Worship throughout yeah. the Roman Empire. <laughs> Pretty Hadrian's serious. boyfriend was being worshipped. Yeah, I mean, statues for hundreds of years. I mean, and he also rebuilt the Pantheon in Rome, which was like the temple to all the gods. So he was a mushrik par excellence. They would a, a pagan, an idolater, absolutely anti-Tohid, right? And Hadrian was also obsessed with, you know, Greek culture and philosophy, even though he was a Roman. He, he would travel to Alexandria, which was the intellectual capital of the world. He would engage in debates with philosophers. And interestingly, Hadrian had something in common with Antiochus IV, whom I believe is described in Daniel in Daniel 9. So the little horn of Daniel 7 is Hadrian, and the perpetrator of the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9 seems to be Antiochus IV. Well, what, do these, what do these two horrible men have in common? They both massacred thousands of believers and the one true God, and they both defiled the sacred grounds of the Jewish temple by building a temple to Zeus. So they both committed the abomination of desolation. And in the synoptics, Jesus prophesizes this future abomination of desolation done by Hadrian, I believe. And this is something the biblical Jesus gets right. Uh, but Hadrian was worse than Antiochus. He was worse than Titus. Hadrian killed nearly 600,000 innocent Jews, according to the Roman historian uh, Cassius Dio. And he turned the holy city of Jerusalem into a pagan city, which he renamed Aelia Capitolina after his clan Alias and after his god, Jupiter Capitolinus. So, and then he had the, the, the Sanhedrin dissolved. He banned the Jews from Jerusalem. He banned circumcision and Jewish holidays and scripture study. All of these things were outlawed. I mean, this guy was demonic. Now, if we take, this is the last thing I'll mention. If we take the opinion of Sadia, right, that time, times, and half a time of Daniel 7 is the same as the 1,335-year period, mentioned in Daniel 12, then something very interesting happens here. So remember, Daniel 7 predicts that the little horn of the fourth beast will oppress the people of God for this period of time, 1,335 years. At the end of this period, the fourth beast will be definitively vanquished by the nation of the Son of Man. So Hadrian came into power in 118 of the Common Era, and the Roman Empire fell on May 29th, 1453, when Ottoman forces took the city of Constantine, called Constantinople. Thus, the persecution of Tawhid, the persecution of Abrahamic monotheism, initiated like none other by Hadrian, the little horn of the fourth beast, came to an end exactly 1,335 years later. So 1453 minus 118 is 1,335 on the dot. Okay? Mm. So... That's that's an interesting coincidence, if it is a coincidence. <laughs> wow. So that's uh, my 
That's my spiel. <laughs> that's your spiel. Well, that's uh, an extraordinary tour de force, as they say. Um, <laughs> Dr. Uh, Elliot, I thank you uh, so much. And uh, and uh, considerably shorter than uh, I was expecting. So I know yeah. that. Uh, that, that's that's fine. Um, well, thank you very much. There's a wealth, as always, a wealth of information. And uh, you did allude several times to the possibility of talking about the crucifixion, the alleged crucifixion, yeah. and Daniel 9, and, and so on. And there's uh, hopefully further um, opportunities to do that. Certainly welcome on Blogging Theology. So um, maybe we'll uh, conclude it there. And um, uh, finally, thank you very much indeed uh, to Dr. Ali Atai for your uh, extraordinary scholarship, your polymath uh, encyclopedic uh, knowledge um, of the Abrahamic faiths, um, something um, I know uh, our viewers uh, really appreciate because they tell me so repeatedly <laughs> um, that they appreciate all that you do, sir. So uh, thank you very much. Is there anything you wanted to say in conclusion or are we? Just just thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Um, uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you. And also to the viewers, subscribe to this channel. Again, best channel on YouTube. And, and, and I, I mean that. And may, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all of you. Thank you so much. Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much. Until next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.